Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Joel absolutely hates sitting on the bench. He wants to be the guy every minute, every game. That's how competitive he is. He doesn't really show outward emotion altogether too much. And I'll go on record right now as saying I will be beyond stunned if he is not the number two in St. Louis next year. That was Ryan Smith, the Springfield Thunderbirds, voice of the Springfield Thunderbirds, play-by-play guy, broadcaster, all-around extraordinary gentleman. The Springfield <laughs> Thunderbirds, voice of the... So he's a Thunderbird, and he's the voice of the Thunderbirds. I got what out a ahead gig. of myself a Checks little out. bit there. What a gig. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Too. You hear excellent insight like that on the pregame show with Alex Ferrario, which you'll hear right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN tonight, starting at 6 o'clock Yahoo. is the Blues are back in action against the Red Wings. Alex, we start with Joel Hofer today because he has looked really good so far in his first two starts in the NHL, and there's at least a chance. We don't have any confirmation yet as far as I've seen, but there's a chance that Joel Hofer will once again get a start tonight for the Blues. If you're not familiar with his work, he's been really good down in the AHL this year. Started 40 games for them. And in those 40 games, he has a 2.5 goals against on average and a 920 save percentage. In the NHL in two games, he's allowed one goal on average, and he has a 970 save percentage, which is pretty damn good. There are 13 games remaining, and the Blues have decided, you know what? Let's just keep three goalies. Why not? We'll have Hofer, we'll have Bennington now that he's back from his suspension, and we've still got Grice remaining on the roster. Alex, if you're in... Craig Burby's shoes. How are you handling this goalie situation for the final 13 games of the regular season? Well, Thomas Grice, I hate to tell you this, buddy, but uh, you'll be riding a lot of pine the rest of the season because if Joel Hofer's up here, he's playing. And I'm starting to believe, and it makes sense that they're going with Hofer tonight because Bennington just returned off of missing two games. Yes, he practices, but you probably want a little bit more practice before you put him back in between the pipes. I'd expect to see Bennington on Thursday. I think you're going to see a back and forth the rest of the season between Hofer a start, Bennington a start, Hofer a start, Bennington a start, because there's no reason to run a goaltender out there on a starter's routine if you're Jordan Bennington, because you've done that already. You played over 57 games. You were right there with Connor Hellebuck until you had the two-game suspension. And if Joel Hofer's up here, Joel Hofer's playing, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to keep him up here so that he could just work on practice and then sit in the press box because he, he could be getting reps down in Springfield over in Springfield up in Springfield. We'll figure that out. 
But Joel Hofer is going to play. Bennington's going to play. And you'll see a little back and forth. I think they have three more back-to-back sets this season. So you would expect, obviously, they're going to get the reps there. Um, but can I be honest with both of you? Please. This is a safe space. Yeah. No, no judgment here. No, never. I'm really not happy about this. Yeah. Because Joel Hofer has been great. And we don't want the Blues to be great right now, guys. We need Connor Bedard. Or Adam Fantilli. Yeah, that's all true. But, yeah, he's going to play. And probably every other day. Every other game. I I think that's right. I think they'll probably go 7-6. and six Will probably be the split in the remainder 13 games. I, I think it's probably going to be... If I had to guess right now, seven would be in favor of Bennington, but I could see where they end up maybe even turn it over to more of like eight starts to Hofer just so they can see what they have in him. Look, you already know what you have in Jordan Bennington. And I said this last week, it's the evaluation period for the St. Louis Blues. So if Hofer continues to play well, I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up getting more starts than Bennington down the final stretch here. I'm not saying he's going to go like 10 of the 13 are going to be Joel Hofer. But I could see where he gets seven versus six or eight versus five to where they want to see more of what they have in him because he is going to be the backup next year because of the one-way deal that he has. So why not see what you have in Joel Hofer? I wouldn't. I think he gets the start tonight, and I wouldn't be shocked if you see him more and more as we wrap up the end of this season. I would give him like nine starts because why not? What do you have to lose at this point? Like If he ends up being better than Bennington down the stretch and he wins you games, so be it. We'll figure that out as we go along. By the way, JR tweeting this just a little bit ago. Hofer is the first goalie off today, so he does appear to be the starter tonight against Detroit. I like it. I think it's the right decision, especially because of how well he's played the last couple of games. In fact, Alex, I would go like this. Hofer, if you continue playing this way, you stay in net until you aren't. Like, if we got a back-to-back, sure, maybe that's a different discussion. But otherwise, you're a starter right now. Bennington has had this crazy workload all season long. The games no longer matter for the Blues in any meaningful way. I think Bennington knows that. The rest of the roster knows that. Get him rested up. He'll be ready to go for next season. I want to find out what they have in Joel Hofer because this isn't just some random goalie. He's been a prospect, like a real prospect in the blue system for a while. They have nurtured him to get to this place. They gave him that one-way deal that Alex mentioned for a reason. They believe he can be a legit backup goalie in a way where, I mean, the last time that the blues had somebody like this was Jake Allen as like a quote unquote backup where they they kind of develop them and then hope that eventually they can take over as the legitimate starting goalie. Mm -hmm. It's been a minute since we've seen a situation like this. I'm curious to see what he looks like. And I would also add this, Alex. I wonder what this does to our evaluation of Jordan Bennington. Now, earlier today, I do want to play this because this presents the other side of the argument, and I'm sure Alex will be on this side as well. Darren Pang was on with the morning show, and they asked him... Hey, when you look at Jordan Bennington's numbers, they're not pretty. How do you evaluate Jordan Bennington while taking into account those metrics? You can throw some of these metrics right out the window and right, out, right in the garbage for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I say that in sincerity. I mean, do metrics do metrics show that the Blues are one of the worst teams in the NHL at giving up high danger chances? If, or, or even more so, if you don't want to call them high danger chances, one-timers from dot to dot, slot chances, rebound chances. We have, The Blues have not been a good team in defending. You can't throw that kind of stuff at me and, and convince me that Jordan Bennington doesn't have intestinal fortitude, which is something that metrics don't show. I think he's been, if not the best player in the Blues this year, I think he's been right up there. Now, listen, I want to start here. 
Darren Pang has forgotten more hockey in the last 10 minutes than I will ever understand in my entire life. That is really important to have in the front. But to answer his question on do the metrics take into account the high danger chances, the slot shot? Yes, they, they, they do take into account all of that stuff. Do they t- take into account intestinal fortitude? No, they, they don't have that. I can't find that on my natural stat trick. I don't like how you chuckle at that. I can't find that on my natural stat trick page on my Excel spreadsheet. That I don't have a column for intestinal fortitude. It is something we'll that, work on that I've got my best people working on it. We're trying to come up with a metric for that. And I think Jordan Bennington leads the league in it. I'm pretty sure. That being said... When you look at any number, and I'm talking, Alex, literally any number that is available to you, it hasn't been great for Jordan Bennington. Now, we also know, because just like Darren Pang, we watch the games. We can see that it has not gone well in front of him. Have there been way too many backdoor tap-ins? Have there been way too many high-danger chances against him? Yes, no doubt about it. Are the Blues not having enough of that sustained offensive zone pressure and then it comes the other way whether it's with rush chances against or just sustained pressure in their own zone yeah all of that has taken place this year and all of that is super important context for the valuation of jordan bennington season but when i look at what we've seen in two games from joel hofer man he's seen 68 shots against he's seen 66 scoring chances against they've had 27 high danger chances And he's allowed two goals. Those same metrics that say that Jordan Bennington has been bad this year with the same defense in front of him say that Joel Hofer has been excellent in the first two games up at the NHL level. Alex, if this trend continues, big if there. How does that change, if at all, your evaluation of Jordan Bennington this season? I don't think it does. Surprise, surprise for me. But Look, if Joel Hofer continues to go out there and perform, I'm still waiting to see a performance from the defense and how Joel Hofer reacts to it like the Blues have had a lot this season. And I believe personally they have tightened things up against Washington and they did so in the mo- in the most recent game. So that being said, Joel Hofer has made some saves that he probably shouldn't be making. And yes, Bennington has given up saves that you probably would like him to make. But more times than not this season, it's been the backdoor tap-ins. It's been the one-time shots with nobody around. It's been the breakaways on Joel on Jordan Bennington. He's kept his team alive. But if Joel Hofer is going to be getting these reps, you know, tonight, yeah, I'd like to see how he performs against this Detroit Red Wings team. They're a great team. So are the Washington Capitals when he took them down. And so were the Winnipeg Jets. Winnipeg Jets had their way with the Blues. But my evaluation of Joel Hofer is more so going to be at the end of the season and how he performed at length if he's getting this opportunities. And maybe with a little bit more playoff caliber competition. And I know he had that against Winnipeg, but let's be honest. Winnipeg has lost three of their or won three of their previous eight games prior to when the Blues played them and the Washington Capitals were dipping quickly out of the playoffs. So if we see a Joel Hofer performance like he put up against Winnipeg and Washington against the Kings, if he plays them on Sunday or against the Boston Bruins or one of those games, I would almost guarantee you he's going to get a start against the Dallas Stars. How does Joel Hofer look against the Dallas Stars? How does the defense look against the Dallas Stars? That's going to be my ability to evaluate Joel Hofer. For me, I'm not going to lie. It would make me kind of question Bennington as a regular season goalie. I, I know he can play in the perform in the playoffs. We've seen it year after year. But with that said, if Hofer does perform, 
I, I think it does raise a lot of questions for me on Jordan Bennington because it is the same defense in front of him. And yes, I understand because I do agree. I think they've been tighter in front of him in the last two, but we'll see. But for me, at some point, the numbers do matter. And I, I, I'm not saying Bennington's been the biggest problem for the Blues all season long, but I saw last season and the disappointing regular season that he had, and I can look at the numbers and say they are worse this year. I would have to say at some point, if Hofer performs well in front of this defense in, say, nine starts that he gets down the stretch, then yes, I, I think I'm going to change my opinion on Bennington in terms of, hey, Bennington is the guy moving forward. When I say that, I don't mean trade Jordan Bennington. I mean, hey, it becomes a little bit more interesting as we go into next season to where maybe it's more of a goalie competition than I originally thought. So I think Hofer can change my opinion of how I view Jordan Bennington this year, but the but it would take a lot. It would take a lot. It, it can't just be kind of a mediocre ending to the season for Joel Holfer. I think it would take a ton, and it should. Like, Jordan Bennington has a pedigree. Jordan Bennington won you a Stanley Cup. Tanner, you texted us last night, and you said, you know, I, I think you can make an argument. Randy Arena, in terms of big game players, is one of the best that we've seen in recent memory. We saw it again last night in the World Baseball Classic. We saw it when he was on the biggest stage in the postseason. Randy Arena has whatever that trade is where the stakes are high, his game gets better. Jordan Bennington has that. Whatever it is, whatever that skill is, that sixth tool, if you want to call it that, he's got it. The thing with Jordan Bennington, though, is during the regular season, it does seem like there are some lapses. And this is not a shot at Jordan Bennington. I care way more about what a goalie can do in the postseason than whether or not he can be an innings eater for you in the regular season. What if Joel Hofer can be that innings eater for you? What if next year, maybe it is more of a like 50-30, 40-40 type of a split during the regular season, and then Benner gets the net once you get to the playoffs? I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. It could be a really good thing to keep Jordan Bennington a little fresher and to keep him at the top of his game by the time that you get to the postseason. So to answer my question directly... I do think it should and will impact the way that I evaluate Jordan Bennington's regular season. It doesn't mean you move on from him. It doesn't mean he's a bad goalie. It just means he might not be a guy that is a consistent 50-game starter for you during the regular season or more than 50-game starter for you during the regular season. You look at the last three years, regular season, quality start percentage is below 50%. That's not what you want. If you're looking at goals against on average, it's above three. If you're looking at save percentage, it's right at 900. Those are like pretty good backup goalie numbers in the regular season. Once you get to the postseason, that all changes because we know how he plays once he gets there. But I do think that this would change things for me in terms of how I evaluate him because all year long I've been with Alex. I've been saying, hey, it's the defense. It's the defense. It's the defense. Well, if there's a goalie that comes in and performs well with the exact same five in front of him, eventually I've got to say maybe it is a little bit more of the goalie than I was led to believe. It's not exclusively the goalie, but there is probably a little more credence to be put on him than I personally would have otherwise expected. The thing about it is once you get to postseason, everybody tightens up their game. Everybody makes sure that there are zero mistakes in their game, whereas the regular season, you're going to have mistakes at the start and the finish. And sometimes goalie just can't goalies can't overcome those. And that's what Jordan Bennington has gone through this season. And nine times out of 10, he has been able to overcome the mistakes made by the defense. It's just sooner or later, the, the dam is going to break. And that's what I think you're seeing right now in front of Joel Hofer. You're seeing defense due to the go to the point 
where we're saying we can't make mistakes. And yeah, you're going to have hiccups here and there, but it's not to the same level of mistakes. I just look at this as next season, it's going to be close to the same. You're going to get more starts for Joel Hofer next year. I think you'll look at it more of like a, a 50 start to a 30 start, like you mentioned, BK. But there's going to be a game sometime between now and the end of the season where the defense is lackluster in front of Hofer and he's going to look vulnerable just like Jordan Bennington did. And then you get back down to earth with all of this one. I just think you're in this honeymoon stage right now with Joel Hofer of, hey, we got to play tight in front of this kid because we don't want to leave him out to dry. I'm with you right now. What I will be curious about is when does that change? If he gets to 10 starts in the final, whatever, 15, 20 games of the season, and it still looks this way, not a 970 save percentage. That's absurd. He's not going to be this good the entire time. But if he's at like a 915 to 920 and he's outperformed Jordan Bennington in this stretch of games where both of them are getting the starts, at some point, we got to give that a little bit of credence, man. At some point, the results have to matter. Otherwise, why are we playing the games? Then we can just look at the back of the baseball card, so to speak, and say, this guy's better than this guy. This guy won a cup. This guy's not the same player. At some point, I got to start giving that a little credence. And I know nobody likes the metrics. Nobody likes the numbers. But let me be stat boy for a second. There are 71 NHL goalies that have started at least 10 games so far this year. You're looking at the high danger chances against. So the ones that are tough to be able to save, right? Jordan Bennington is 68th in terms of what should they be able to save versus what they have actually saved. If you don't want to look at it that way, you would rather just look at the high danger save percentage. Jordan Bennington, among all 71 players since high danger save percentage, is 59th. He just hasn't been good in those spots so far this year, and that used to be previously the thing that he would hang his hat on. That is not all on him. There is absolutely context that is important here because some of those chances are just impossible to save. Some of it, Tim. And that's what I want to see the rest of the way is how much of it was Bennington, how much of it is, is the defense, and what does Joel Hofer look like in front of that same defense? Blues back in action tonight against the Red Wings. Pre-game starts at 6 o'clock. Sounds like Joel Hofer going to be getting the start for the Blues in net. Excited to see him down the stretch for the St. Louis Blues. By the way, uh, Blues, if you want to start letting some of those high-danger chances in your net, it's probably the time to do it. Losing against Detroit would help you when it so, comes to the draft lottery. I think Grice should be starting yeah, tonight. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're saying it's time for Grice? I think Grice if should they be. win tonight with Hofer and Nett, I would not go to Bennington on Thursday is what I'll say. I would go to Hofer. Or excuse me, I would go to uh, to Grice. Oh, okay. Uh, because then you're going on the road to Detroit. You know, give him the opportunity. Yeah. He played against, for Detroit. Yeah, kind of a homecoming game for yeah. him. That's yeah. how we'll sell it. Grice, go ahead. Get out there. Go play. Have fun. I think Grice should play every game the rest of the season. I bet Grice, if he had a, like a cup of coffee in his hand and they're in the locker room and Ruby goes, Grice, you're net. He'd drop it because he'd be so stunned. <laughs> he'd be like, are you sure? Wow, you what? Sure, he only I gets I was net. done. He only gets in net now when it's, you know, a goaltender either gets yanked for getting into a fight or a goaltender skate blade comes off. He only gets in in like the second period for a couple of minutes. He's Alex. That's T-Bone on BK. Coming up next, there's nothing left for the World Baseball Classic to accomplish. At this point, we all sit back and enjoy it for what it is. One of the best tournaments around. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. A 2-2 pitch to Yoshida. Is golf down the line? It's hooking way up there. 
towards the pole. It's good. It's tied. An iconic swing. Verdugo in the left center field. He puts Mexico right back in front. It rolls all the way to the wall. Verdugo stops at second with the go-ahead double. Cracked in the air. Deep center field. Thomas on the move. It's off the wall. Otani's in to score. Here comes the winning run. Japan turns it around on its last breath. That's what it sounded like. Audio courtesy of Fox Sports last night of the World Baseball Classic as an all-time classic baseball game, regardless of setting, went down between Japan and Mexico last night down in Miami. Alex, they didn't need to convince me anymore. I know Tanner's been all in on the World Baseball Classic from the moment that the first pitch was thrown. This tournament has lived up to every possible expectation in my estimation. Last night, though, that was a classic, dude. That was it. It was a game that had everything. It was great starting pitching. It was um, huge moments at the plate. It was great defensive plays. Randy Arozarena at the wall. It was big time players in a big time moment. Shohei Otani coming up to the plate as the potential tying run with Giovanni Gallegos on the mound. Like you can't script this kind of stuff any better. And then for Japan to find a way to walk it out or walk it off rather in the end, just an unbelievable baseball game. I think that at this point, for me at least, the World Baseball Classic has become must-watch television. The players talk about it in a reverence that you don't hear them speak about anything other than like a World Series type of environment. Shohei Otani was so into the game last night that I'm pretty sure I saw him show emotion for the first time in his entire major league career since coming over to the States. It's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. And man, I think that we're going to start seeing even more of the big time players performing in this in the next iteration of the World Baseball Classic because of what they're watching the same way we are right now. I would push back on it was must watch at the beginning because the beginning felt just a little dry to me just because of the innings limits. It's like what we talked about. And yeah, there were some teams that were taking it seriously. Then there were other teams that were throwing Brady Singer out there in the middle of a bad game and thinking, oh, well, this got ugly. To, you didn't have to throw him under sorry, the bus like that. Sorry, But as, as the elimination games built up, and, and this was the way for hockey Olympics too, like when you get those play-in games, like they're fun, but it's dry. But as soon as you get the elimination games, I, I mean, it is must-watch television. And guys, last night made taxes fun. My wife and I were doing taxes, and Japan and Mexico made it entertaining. What? That's a, that is high praise. That's for what I'm saying. Like it's rare to make that entertaining, but you just, you get the back and forth mentality. This one was different than the USA one because this entire game felt like what the first two innings was of the USA game for because sure. it was close. It was tight. And you're thinking, where's this going to go? And then of course the talent just unloaded uh, for USA. This one though, it, it felt like a, a playoff game. And it is with this elimination. So, and then you love the energy with it. Like just watching that final round third base for Japan and sliding at home and the celebration, you get the emotion, you get the energy and you're right, BK by the end of all of this, 
the next time this comes around, I think you're going to have a lot more players fighting to get involved with the World Baseball Classic. And I just love the atmospheres that are being presented at these games. I mean, it is like watching a baseball game with a football environment. Did you hear, so in a late game situation, I can't remember specifically what what he was talking about. I think it was like the eighth inning. Ken Rosenthal attempted to give a sideline report. You couldn't hear him. You couldn't couldn't hear hear him. There was zero chance I was going to hear anything that Ken Rosenthal said. He tried. He kept powering through. And then the broadcasters, Joe Davis, basically was like, yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to hear anything. <laughs> Sorry, so we just started talking I, again. I, I think it was after the Verdugo double that gave Mexico the lead. Joe Davis said the booth is literally shaking because it is so loud in that place. I love that. I, and I, I love the atmosphere. of it. I, I do find it a little frustrating with kind of, I don't want to say the pitcher limit that the WBC puts on, but more of what the teams put on were like, for example, had Mexico won, Gio's probably unavailable for the championship game because the Cardinals would have said, hey, we don't want him pitching. I get it. I, I do get it from the Cardinals side of things, but that is a little frustrating. But I mean, when you watch these games, you see that these guys are enjoying this more than playoff baseball. Why? Because they're representing their country. And, and I think it's so much fun. And, and you look at just the way fans react. I mean, they had the shots of the Japanese fans that were at the game last night crying because Japan's back in the WBC final for the first time since the second iteration of the tournament. So I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it for even during the group stage. I enjoyed it because though I understand they weren't elimination games, you could tell some of these guys, it felt like eliminations games, like the Czech Republic, who didn't make it. They felt like they were playing in elimination games all the time because they weren't expected to win. And they had the, if you finish fifth in the group, then you have to go back to qualifying. And nobody wants to do that. So I, I've enjoyed the whole experience of it. And last night's game was perfect. You had great starting pitching at the beginning, the defensive plays. You had late situations. And also you had great, just big-time matches. I mean, Giovanni Gallegos for Shohei Otani to lead things off in the bottom of the ninth. Like, talk about a hell of a matchup in a semifinal game. Oh, and by the way, tonight you're going to get an all-star loaded lineup yeah. of the United States. Versus sh- really, uh, they're flying under the radar, even though they're in the final loaded Japan team. Dude, that and lineup- Otani could close tonight. That's the part that Shohei Otani could be closing out this game tonight. Watching that game last night, I have not been as all in on the World Baseball Classic from from go from the word go as Tanner has, but I've watched a decent amount of it. You get a better sense of how good that lineup is from Japan when you watch them against Mexico, because we're familiar with a decent amount of the pitchers that are on the Mexico side. Unfortunately for the Cardinals, basically every I think actually literally every reliever had some kind of a tie to the Cardinals that ended up giving up a run in that game for Mexico. It's not what you're looking for. But so we're kind of familiar with some of those guys. So you see what the at bats look like from the Japanese lineup, especially in like the top five or so. Who buddy. There is some real power. There is some patience. Like that lineup is for real in what they're bringing out there. And so it just makes me think like for the next iteration of this thing, I think the biggest question mark, the biggest frustration for for the team USA is the pitching side of things. Their best pitchers didn't go. It's cool that we get to see Wayno and Michaelis and Lance Lynn again, a lot of Cardinals ties to the uh, team's pitching staff, but why isn't a guy like Garrett Cole there or Burns like the the best pitchers from America should be going to this thing, man. The position players are there. I would also add this, something that I really have enjoyed about this. Do you guys feel more prepared for baseball season now because of this? Because I feel myself being like, all right, it's time. Like I'm ready for the Cardinals to get to opening day. But the problem is then you get to the beginning of the season and you don't get this atmosphere anymore. I think here in St. Louis, we do to a degree. I, like the Cardinals, 
beginning of the season, by the way, their schedule, I think will promote some of these types of environments going up against the Blue Jays. You got the Brewers, you've got the Braves, like the early season schedule really gets things ramped up quickly. Now we'll hit a lull, no doubt about it. And the weather will suck and there will be games where we're like, this is just not enjoyable to watch. They'll play Cincinnati. They'll play the Pirates like that. That stuff happens. But it has me like my baseball juices are flowing now or I'm ready for the Cardinals to be in the regular season. And I do feel like typically this is the dead part of spring training where you're like, okay, what more can we talk about with Jordan Walker is really good. The outfield is going to be crowded. We know that there's going to be some big time questions with the reliever side of things for the Cardinals. There's just not a whole lot left there. They're kind of playing out the string at this point in spring training. But when you have the World Baseball Classic as the backdrop, I do think it promotes a little bit more excitement about baseball season being on the horizon. I'll tell you what got my juices flowing. The trade deadline. Because now I'm all geared up for Shohei Otani being acquired by the Cardinals. Ooh, Yeah, so I'm all in. So you trade Mason Wynn and Jordan Walker for him? Sure. I can't tell if you're being serious or not. Maybe not Jordan Walker. Mason Wynn, yeah, fine. I almost turned off your mind. Fine, get rid of him. Shohei Otani's coming to St. Louis, boys. Have you seen the bro ship that right now is happening between Shohei and Newt? Ship. What'd you just say to me? I said bro ship. I just wanted to clarify that that's what you said. Well, I said what I said. You okay. can hear whatever you'd like to hear. There's T-shirts right now of Newton Shohei Otani's face on it that are going around for a lot of the uh, Team Japan fans. Let me say that again. There are faces of Newt Bar and Otani on a T-shirt together. Otani will be a Cardinal. I'm locking in Mr. 95%. In all seriousness. Oh, that was serious. I think that there's like a, a 2% chance that Otani is a Cardinal. Oh, I think it's and that might that. be high. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I think it's I lower than maybe that. like 0.2 percent chance. But I do think there are two things taking place right now that make the odds better than zero. I would say one, he's experiencing winning for the first time since he was in Japan. <laughs> and I do think God, that matters sad. like him being in meaningful <laughs> games. He said this yesterday to Ken Rosenthal. He said, quote, It's been a while since I was playing in a win or lose a playoff type of atmosphere. Obviously, we couldn't lose and I wanted to get the guys rallied up in the dugout. That was his response to the emotion that he showed as he was getting on to second base when he hit that double in the ninth. And Newt told him, you know what, does come to St. Louis because it's always this way. I'm serious when I say, like, I think there's some truth to that. By the way, Shohei Otani is coming to St. Louis this year because of the new schedule, so he'll be able to experience it, Cardinals fans. I think we should make it a day of, like, yeah. Shohei to STL or say hey to Shohei, something like that. We need to figure out a day Shohei. of BK and Ferrario being at the ballpark while the Angels are in town. Because when they're here, we got to show out for them. Show out for Shohei. That's what it's going to be. Show, show out, out for, for Shohei hey. day at Bush. And we're going to be there. We're going to be a part of this, Alex. We need to show him. We need to put our best foot forward for Shohei Otani. We need to get some T-shirts, tell him that he was a part of the T-Bone 3 and the Ferrario 5. Um, find any way, shape, or form. We'll get, we'll get him I, I Just Nuded shirt. That's right. Get him an there I Just Nuded in Bush shirt. Just Let's not take him to the arch. Because... You know. Oh, we'll take him to the zoo. Yeah, take I him think to the he'll zoo. love it. I think get he would love it. Get some T-Ravs for him. We'll get T-Bone to bring him some pork steaks and T-Ravs to Bush Stadium. There we go. How could he say no, honestly? And all seriousness, I do think that, like, if, if you're Shohei Otani, 
First of all, I do think the Cardinals have a little bit of payroll flexibility that they haven't had previously if you're darn tootin'. Mason Wynn and Jordan Walker work out. Now, if some of these young pitchers also start to make some headway and you see Gordon Graceffo or Michael McGreevy or Tink Hintz and they're on the way as well, hey man, paying $50, $50 million a year for Shohei Otani suddenly seems a little bit more palatable. For the St. Louis Cardinals. Everybody's texting in and saying, Shohei to St. Louis, how about Newt to the Angels? Guys, Newt, uh, Shohei doesn't even want to be with the Angels right now. Newt Bar, uh, he's not going to recruit him to the Angels. I, I do think it's more likely that Newt Bar is on the Angels than Shohei is on yeah. the Cardinals. No. And, and can Shohei I, doesn't and, even want to be there. I, uh, Mike Trout is on the Cardinals in return. No, we don't need back problems. For, for, yeah. We don't uh, need back Newt problems. Bar. We can need I, uh, legit hitters and pitchers. Can I kind of spoil the fun for a second? No. You know who else is on Japan? And we haven't seen the bromance, but is on a winning team? You Darvish. Is you Darvish's face on a t-shirt with Shohei yeah, Otani? Have you no, seen a bunch of viral videos of you Darvish I, with Shohei? I don't even see you Darvish. I think there's a secret bromance. They're not even the starting you Darvish tonight. Yeah, they skipped him. Yeah, no. I, you Darvish is bad, and they said, Mark Shohei's like, well, I want to be with Newt. Shohei I would, I would Padre. Darvish. I would, too. But I'm just saying, I would rather T-Bone over here trying to spoil the fun with a terrible take. There's a T-shirt with Newt and Otani's face on it. It's all we need, really. It's a bro ship. Show up for Shohei. Show up for Shohei. I think that's it. Show up for Shohei Day. BK and Ferrario live from Bush Stadium. Show up for Shohei Day. They do have a day game while they're here. Oh, my gosh. So we really are going to broadcast from there. I think so, yeah. We should should have a day Uh out at Bush Stadium. And I guarantee all of our wonderful texters are going to be out there. They'll show up for Shohei. I I would be shocked if they would. We're going to make a party of it. We'll have St. Louis-style ribs. We'll have pork steaks, T-Ravs, gooey butter cake. And we're going to Ted Drews. Bring some Ted Drews out there there for Shohei. Yeah, we're going to show them it's up. It's early May, May 2nd through the 4th. Those are the three games. See, that's the three game set while the Angels are in town. It's perfect. Would you rather have Shohei or Mike Trout? Shohei. It's not even a question. I think I would rather have if you Shohei. Say my, I was gonna say if you say now, on his Trout. next contract, probably Trout. I just but, want Shohei. Yeah, assume that it's going to be eight years at $50 million per. Fine. Yeah, I'd have Trout. I just want Shohei on the mound doing the pepper grinder while Newt's in right field doing the pepper grinder. Over or under 1% chance that that happens. Under. Yeah, under. <laughs> over. I'll go one and a half. Man. Coming up Man. next, we continue 1. our countdown 2. of the 20 <laughs> most important players for 2023. I think this player is much more likely to be a Cardinal in 2024 than Shohei is. We'll tell you who that is next. You're on 101 ESPN. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And now, the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season on PK and Ferrario. Number six, Miles Michaelis. Swing and a miss. And a strikeout for Miles to start the eighth inning. On their feet here at Bush Stadium. Trying to get him through the eighth inning. Pitch number 115 to match his career high. Swing and a miss. He's three away. And a fly ball into right field. 
Carlson is there. He's one away from history. He didn't quite get it there, but he was pretty darn close. Miles Michaelis is number six on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. T-Bone was the lowest on Michaelis at number nine on his list. I had Michaelis at number seven. Alex loves Miles Michaelis and thinks he is critically important for the Cardinals this year. Had him all the way up at number three, and I see why, Alex. He was the guy that you could point to in any of the biggest games of the season and say, our best against your best means Miles Michaelis is on the mound. Finished the year with 202 innings pitched, a 3.3 ERA, started in 32 games for the Cardinals. He was the model of consistency. This is not a guy that's going to win with swing and miss stuff. He's pitching to contact and he does it effectively from start to finish. He did go up, especially in the second half of the season against some of the best pitchers in baseball. And for the vast majority of those starts, he was able to at least match what those teams were getting from their ace. I don't know if it's fair to expect ace level stuff from Michaelis in 2023. What do you think is fair to expect from him though, Alex? So the reason I had him at number three, I had him above Jack Flaherty, above Montgomery, every other pitcher, because if you lose miles, Michaelis, no other pitcher on this team can match the 200 plus innings. And if you lose him, you're screwed in terms of length out of your rotation. Uh, so I have him that important And best case scenario for me is what he did last year, but to the next level. I, I think you're not, you're never going to change the swing and miss stuff, but maybe you get to the point where this guy has a lower ERA. Maybe you get to the point where he's able to go a little bit more than 200 innings pl- pitched. And I don't even know if that's fathomable. It's weird because best case scenario for me is what he did last year. I agree. And maybe you can throw in 2018 because Miles Michaelis did get robbed of a couple of victories last season. You're talking maybe 15, 16 wins for him. He probably would have been in the Cy Young conversation for how he pitched. Um, best case scenario for Miles Michaelis, do what you did last year, big man. I would agree with that. I, I, I think best case scenario, you've got an all-star in your rotation. Michael is an all-star last year, and you referenced 2018 was an all-star in that year, too. Going to be a guy that's going to be the innings eater. Is he ever going to have that A stuff? No, but he he's going to be a solid number three, number four for you. Maybe number two if things go awry, but best case scenario is basically just a repeat of what you saw last year. Totally agree. We were we had all these conversations going into the postseason about can the Cardinals rotation match up against some of the best teams in the National League? And the answer was yet last year, probably not. You're hoping that this year you're able to change that with the return of Jack Flaherty and a full season of Montgomery, a full season of Steven Matz. You hope that around Wayno and Michaelis, those guys are the ones that are able to lift up the the floor that was the rotation from a year ago. But Michaelis is a part of that floor. He's able to keep you elevated. If you get into a spot where you need six, seven innings, Michaelis is the guy that you turn to. He's the one that can give that to you consistently. And if you get into a game three of a series, for example, in the postseason, he's the one you want to go to. He can match up against a Charlie Morton, for example, from the Atlanta Braves. Does he have the same strikeout stuff that he does? No, but he could put up similar types of numbers overall in terms of the ERA as what you're expecting this year out of a Charlie Morton, for example. Kodai Senga is the number three starter for the Mets this year. Could he be similar to a Miles Michaelis? Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Taiwan Walker, I think you have a better number three starter right now than the Philadelphia Phillies do. You look out to uh, LA with the Dodgers. I have no idea right now who their number three starter is. Maybe it's Dustin May. I think that I know what 
consistency-wise, I'm getting out of Michaelis over a guy like Dustin May. And then the final team would probably be the Padres. I would say their number three starter right now is like Nick Martinez, Michael Walker, somebody like that. I feel pretty good about my spot there too. Michaelis is the one spot in your rotation rotation right now as a number three starter potentially where you feel really good about it relative to what your peers have to offer in that spot. What is the worst case scenario though, guys? If this season goes awry for Michaelis, what does that look like? Man, I, I hate to go to the injury side of things, but that really feels like worst case scenario for him. I mean, I went back and looked at 2019 where, uh, I mean, he was not bad, but it was his worst season minus the injury plague season, but he still gave you 184 innings and it's not like he was getting hit around a lot. I, I guess worst case scenario for Miles Michaelis is that pitch to contact doesn't work for him this season, or maybe the defense falters a little bit behind him, but pitch to contact becomes a problem for Miles Michaelis. Uh, I do remember in 2019, he had a problem with giving up home runs. That could be worst case scenario for him as well. And you're not getting the length that you need from him. If you're only getting four to five innings out of Miles Michaelis, maybe on the lesser side of that, that would be worst case scenario for me with him. I, I think the worst case scenario is that the rule change of the banning of the shift hurts Miles Michaelis because of what you said, yep. pitching to contact. That is his game. And anytime you're pitching to contact, you're basically gambling on just the ball finding somebody. So I, I think the worst case scenario is going to probably lo- would look a lot like 2019 where He's throwing about 180 innings, which isn't a bad thing in the ERAs and the fours. Like, that's a really good number four, number five starter for you. Problem is, is I think you expect a little bit better from Miles Michaelis. So I think worst case scenario, the banning of the shift hurts Miles Michaelis, and you see him revert back to 2019 form. And I will say his stuff has not looked sharp so far from what I've seen from him in spring training and at the WBC. I'm not raising the alarm bell, but I do think it's something worth keeping an eye on. I think the biggest thing with Michaelis is that it's more about those around him than it is him. I think Michaelis is basically the same pitcher every year. Was he significantly better in 18 or 22 than he was in 19? I think a little bit, but not significantly. I think a lot of that is just you're playing by whether or not the balls find your guys behind you or not. And when you pitch to contact, that's part of what it go how it goes. That's why you love having it's why Ollie talks so much about the swing and miss stuff. Because you don't have any other variable that comes comes into play in those scenarios. There is no ah best runner on the field was able to beat out an infield single. There is no as seeing eye single situation, especially this year with the banning of the shift. You don't have to worry about that either. It does make it more difficult to live the way that Miles Michaelis does. And if you don't get positive answers on Jack Flaherty, if Steven Matz falls back into the, ah, he's dealing with all of these injuries again. And if Adam Wainwright deals with some struggles this year because of potential dips in the velocity, Having Miles Michaelis as a number three or four starter when you kind of need him to pitch up like a number one or two the way that he did last year, that's when things go awry. If you're asking too much of a guy that doesn't have that swing and miss stuff, I think you could put yourself into a bad spot. I'm not super concerned about that, though. Michaelis is one of the guys that I do have a lot of confidence is going to be a good player for the Cardinals. He comes in at number six on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for 2023. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to questions and answers. I've got a question for the guys on the new rule changes that are being implemented and whether or not we could see one more added to the mix. We'll do that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe? Text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service sex line for questions and answers. I've got a question to start things out. T-Bone, I want to get your reaction on this first. So Ben Fredrickson had a great column earlier today on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch website. He wrote his 10 takeaways with 10 days remaining in Cardinals spring training. One of them was not specific to the Cardinals, but a bigger picture baseball question. He said this. Don't be stunned if Major League Baseball adds a mercy rule. It is starting to get traction in uh, some of the people around baseball. Participants in the World Baseball Classic have grown fond of it. Ten runs ahead after seven innings would be the rule. Who says no? T-Bone, how do you feel about the potential of a mercy rule coming to Major League Baseball? Because I can already hear old man yells at clouds coming no, in. Three, no. two. No, I love the idea of a mercy rule. Whoa! Hot damn. Grandpa's I, I have bo- never been more surprised Grandpa's by anything you said on the radio. I hate, absolutely hate, watching a game when it is clearly a 15-2 game. There is no comeback coming. And we have to watch the team burn a pitcher for tomorrow's game by using him. Or turn to a stinking position player on the mound. If I never had to watch another position player on the mound, oh, sign me up. Oh, so you don't want to see Mason Wynn pitch? No. That- no. No, he doesn't want he to see a, Yachty and Poodles pitch. is a shortstop. Yachty is a catcher. Albert That's what they is said about DH. Shohei Otani. I was wondering how we were going to get to the old man. Yeah, I was say. We found it. I, <laughs> That's I what they said be, about Shohei Otani. He's a all, DH. I would be all in on the mercy rule and Let's not just do 10 runs at seven. Let's do what the WBC does. If it is a 15-run game by the fifth week, you can just send me home. I got to see the baseball game. I can turn it off. I can enjoy the rest of my night. I am in. Sign me up. Look, I'd I'd love to argue with old man Rivers over here, but let's be real. If I can go to bed at 8 o'clock because (laughs) the game's over in the fifth, sign me up for that. So let's go with mercy rules. I don't mind this after seven. I got to be honest. Our show, I'm I'm shocked that we're all on the same page what here. What are you talking about? Old Man Rivers over here. I like to go to bed before the sun I goes down. I thought for sure Old Man Rivers would be like, this takes away from the no, pageantry. I, this takes away. I like to see teams make a comeback. I, th- I, I will would, say this. I will say this. We're already getting rid of the timelessness of baseball to get rid of the one other thing that has been consistent, which is like, you know, the innings that you're playing. <laughs> that is... That is something that would be a major change. I mean, they did it for double headers. So, like, why not? But that was for a season. Yeah. No, uh, what? Uh, ugh, that one. That one bothers me still. 
I I would not be super opposed to it. I think this would do less to change numbers for players than allowing position players to pitch later on in the game does. Like, imagine how many statistics guys are able to put up in the late game situations where you're going up against either the worst pitcher in another team's bullpen or the position player that's going out there to pitch because the game is completely out of hand. I do think that has a relatively significant impact on statistics for certain guys at times. I would be in favor of this. I don't think it's the worst idea. I know that we're going to get absolutely crushed on the text line that all three of us are into this. The 636, this is the major leagues, no mercy rule. Are you really watching that game, 636? Yeah, it was great when Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina came to the mound to throw because that probably was never going to happen. But if you did that five years ago, I would have been absolutely out on that game. Uh, so you can't have this in the postseason, of course. Like, this would exclusively be a regular season rule, right? We all agree with that? I don't care if it's in the postseason. Oh, get out of here, months, man. No. If it's over, did, you, it's over. did you enjoy U.S. Cuba when it was 14 to 2? No, that I turned game it was off. Over. No, hold on, though. For the postseason, this is where I will push back in Why? a big way. Because that's where you've got to be able to use your relievers accordingly. Like, you got to be smart with the way that you handle your bullpen in a game like that. No, so I getting, do think that is necessary. If you're getting I think mercy, you got to finish out the game in the playoffs. If you're getting mercy ruled in the playoffs, you're not going the distance in the postseason. Maybe, but the next day, you have to pitch for that day and the but next day. the winning team is still burning their pitchers. Yeah, and that's part of it. you got to be smart. No. That's trash. No, yeah. I'm out on that. No. Uh, yeah. Get it's out of here, 15 run, Yeah, get out of here, old man. By the way, Jamie Rivers just texted me and said, be careful with that old man Rivers. Jamie, I wasn't talking about you. You're not old. You look great, man. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, I read earlier today that Major League Baseball might be looking to make some changes already to the new rules that they are implementing. Good. Let's put that 15 rule uh, in there. Is there anything specific that you would like to see change? Glad you asked. I have a couple. Oh, geez. He's got an Excel sheet. I think that the 15-second clock is a little too quick. I think that it should be 20. I, I said that early in spring, and you pushed yep. back. I was wrong. I don't think that matters. Hey, I'm, I'm ready to. I'm willing to admit that I when I'm wrong. And time. I don't think that matters. It happens I, a lot. Perfect opportunity. I think that the 20 seconds with runners on or without would be totally fine. In fact, if you want to do 20 seconds without, 25 seconds with, that's cool by me. I've got no issues with it. It's it's already being sped up so much compared to what it used to be that I'm, I'm good with that. The other thing, and I've heard Derek Gould talk about this. I'll give him the credit. I do think that one thing we should change is right now it's eight seconds into the clock. The hitter has to be in the box ready to go. And then nine seconds in, the catcher has to be set ready to receive the pitch. That should be flipped in my opinion. I think the catcher should have to be set first and then the hitter. It's a small little quirk, but I think that that is something that they should flip personally. That would be the other thing. And then there's some little stuff that like the nuances of it when you get into the season. I I think it was can't remember who it was. One player came out. Oh, Brandon Nimmo came out and said like, hey, I know it's a silly thing and it's going to sound like I'm complaining. I'm not. I like the new rules. But when you get on base and you're putting your equipment on, this is like a pretty big rush to be able to get all of your stuff on to be ready to go on the bases. So giving them a little extra time or if the guy that made the final out in the last inning is the first one up in the next one there's just little stuff like that that can be tweaked t-bone is there anything else that you would want to see changed 
Uh, I saw, I think it was in The Athletic to yesterday when the piece came out from Evan Drellich. I, I do think there should be a little bit more leeway at the beginning of an inning uh, in terms of just that first pitch getting a batter into the box. And uh, because like if a player, the example they used was what if a player makes a play in the field at the end of an inning? I, I've seen pitch violations on, I don't. it's either the pitcher or the batter either way to where at the beginning of the inning, do we really need to rush that? I, I don't think so. I, I don't know if we need a pitch clock on the first pitch of an inning. After that, then we can get going. Sure. But that would only be the other one that I would say. Alex? No. Alex loves baseball. I love baseball. Coming up yeah. next, if you knew then what you know now, would you have brought David Perron back on the deal that he signed in Detroit? We'll discuss it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Doug Armstrong has had so much success moving on from guys and bringing in other guys who take over and assume those roles, and he's sustained that success over a 12-year period, you feel good about your chances with him doing that. But they're not all going to hit, and they're not all going to just blend together and the team continue to play well. And So as you analyze this team right now, there are plenty of issues. We could sit here and do a list of 20. Towards the top of that list is the, the departure of David Perron. Blues are seeing David Perron tonight here in St. Louis against the Detroit Red Wings, his new team on alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Jeremy Rutherford on with us early in the season when we asked JR what or how big of an issue it is that the Blues did not bring back David Perron. How much does that play into their early season struggles? Alex, when we were thinking about this earlier today, I asked you a very simple question. If you knew then what you know now, would you have brought back David Perron? My answer to the question, I think, is probably going to surprise some people because my answer is no. I don't think I would have because I think that it would have ended up making you worse off in the long haul. Now, I want a caveat here. I would also add I would not have brought back Nick Letty either. I would have gone over. I would have gone neither Letty nor David Perron. And I know that sounds kind of silly given the fact that I think Perron makes you a better team right now. I would rather see those opportunities go to a younger player. If you had David Perron on the roster right now, not sure you have at least one of Rana or Kapanen. In fact, I'm pretty sure you couldn't have made that work. So I, I like the direction that this team is heading. I think that it makes a lot of sense that they're giving opportunities to the young players. I think that it helps them that they were able to trade all of those guys at the deadline. If we knew then what we know now, which is this was a rebuilding season, I don't think that David Perron, at his age, given where he's at in his career, made sense to bring back. So I would not have given him the contracts that he ultimately got. Would you have, Alex? I would have, yeah. Because, and it's not so much of on ice. I, I believe this season's going this way with or without a David Perron. But the reason I would have wanted him on this team, and I understand you're probably not getting Kapanen or Verona because the 4.75 that he's making this year and next year, that's essentially what Kapanen and Verona make. But I need somebody... I need somebody who has that gamer mentality on this roster still. And that's where that's the off ice element that I feel like this team is missing without David Perron. And yes, you had it with O'Reilly and you had Nolachari. David Perron was just a different animal. We heard him on the opening drive every single week uh, last season talking about, hey, we're not playing the right way. We're not playing. He was the guy that was always standing at the locker after a bad loss, willing to call people out and people listened. I think for the development for a Jordan Cairo, the development for a Robert Thomas, for a Jake neighbors uh, for potentially what you might have next year with bull Duke. 
it would have been very impactful to have a David Perron. And I would have signed that because I, and I understand your caveat of not doing either of Perron or Letty, but you were going to go one direction or the other. If you were Doug Armstrong, because you knew you needed defense, but you debated on David Perron. I would have gone David Perron because that off ice element is very impactful. I, I've gone back and forth in this all morning, and, and I think I've settled on. I, I think I would go neither as well, just because what I know now in hindsight, one, the Letty thing, like the defense probably would still be what it is now with with or without Letty. Uh, but the Perron one for me is the Perron deal for Detroit made sense because they thought they were going to be exiting kind of their rebuild slash retool. They thought they were an up-and-coming team. For the Blues now knowing in hindsight what we do, and they're beginning kind of this retool phase. I just don't know if he brings as much value to this team as what you would, because I I don't disagree that Pran is a gamer and he's that guy that always was outspoken in the locker room. I think teams need that guy when they're competing for the playoffs, when they are retooling and playing for draft pick like the Blues are right now, and even in the even like next year, I, I don't think they're going to be a playoff team next year. I'll just be. Frank, I'd be shocked if the Blues are a playoff team next year. I, I don't think Doug Armstrong thinks they're going to be yeah, a playoff team next year. Yeah, based on what he's been saying. So with that in the back of my mind, I, I don't think I would have done the Perron deal just because the timeline for him doesn't fit what I think the Blues are looking at in their timeline. But he didn't go into the offseason thinking that you were going to be this bad. I know, but I'm saying you if you knew then what you know now. That, that's that's the caveat here. Because, of course, like I said at the time, I would have brought back David Perron. I, I thought they made a mistake at the time in going with Letty over Perron. I, I continue to believe, like, if you don't know then what you know now, if you just go back to that moment, I still think that they made a mistake. I, I think they should have brought back David Perron. That being said, if you have the benefit of hindsight and we see where this season ultimately went, it's not a good team and they're building for the future. I would also add this on the leadership point of it. I think sometimes it can help to find out sink or swim who are the leaders in this room. And that can be a tough thing and it, it causes some real growing pains while you're going through it. I think Robert Thomas was forced to find his voice this year, especially recently since he was called out by the head coach. We heard him on the morning show. We've seen what his on ice product has been since then. I think he's responded. And I think that's a big part of leading into the next iteration of whatever St. Louis blues hockey is. If David Perron is here, David Perron is going to be the voice of the team. Like that's going to be the case because that's his role. And I, I give him a lot of credit for that because it's who he is as a player. It's who he is as a person. I'm not sure that we would have seen the same development in terms of being an on and off ice voice from Thomas that we've seen so far this year. That's something that I wanted to see from them. I want to find out who the leaders are within that within that room. So I think that's part of it. I think seeing guys like Verona and Kapanen and top six roles is a part of this. I think a lot of this is just like you don't see the same development from young guys if you have David Perron here this year. Um, and that's hard to say because I'm a guy that loves David Perron and I think he's been forever underrated in his time in St. Louis and what I have liked to have seen him back both from an on and off ice perspective, hundred percent. But I think looking back on it now, I, I do think that the blues are in a better position long-term by not having David Perron as part of the, the next future the I next year. I see it as Robert Thomas was going to find that voice sooner or later with or without David Perron. Yeah, maybe you're in the backseat a little bit because you do have a David Perron, but David Perron's not a guy that's just going to stand in front and say, I've got this, guys. He's going to force guys to to learn as they move about because that's what players did to David Perron when he was a younger know, player. Man. I think that's different. If you're if you're a guy that's in a room, like, I mean, put yourself in any of these shoes, right? Like, put when I was work, for example, 
when I'm working with Anthony Stolter, and I'm the producer for Stoltz, right? Stoltz and Jamie were doing the show, and I was the producer for those guys. I'm not the leader of that show. Stoltz's been doing this in this city, in this market for for like 10 years. Since I was in college, Stoltz has been doing this job. Stoltz's the one that is in charge of that show. When Jamie's doing it with me, Jamie had a significant say in what we would do on a day-to-day basis. And this is just our situation here in this silly little job that we have. And so, like, is it different when we are now doing the show? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that I take on a, a a bigger part of the leadership of the show, a, a bigger por- portion of the, like, here's what we'll do day-to-day. And so, like, it, it's obviously extremely different in a locker room compared to what we do on a day-to-day basis. But... When David Perron's in there, I think other guys become secondary to what David Perron has to say. And that's not a bad thing inherently. David Perron is a really good leader. There's a reason why he's the guy that has the biggest voice in the room. But I do think now that he's out of the room and Ryan O'Reilly is out of the room, it requires other guys to be willing and able to step up to the table with that voice. I just there's still a development period with this, and you you could do that. Look at the Montreal Canadiens are trying to do that right now, and they're still trying to figure out who has a voice. Having a David Perron still having a voice and teaching some of those younger guys who are 22, 23 years old, uh, they learned that over two years. And it's not like he's got a five year deal. You're talking about two years of David Perron, which would have been beneficial. That aspect of it is David but it Perron's- also is it's also beneficial for a Jordan Cairo on the ice, too, because How? Jordan Cairo is not I, I don't believe Jordan Cairo is having the slip ups he's had on defense with a David Perron because but he had it last year, but we he had it last year, year but it tightened up. And David Perron is the type of player that Alexander Steen was that was willing to tell a player, look, you got to be better with this. And that voice goes a long way with somebody with the longevity of a David Perron. I disagree with that completely because last year we saw the same question marks from Jordan Cairo as we had this year. And he has tightened it up a little bit lately. I, I do think you're seeing better performances out of Jordan Cairo. I can't attribute that exclusively to the fact that they had David Perron here. Then is David Perron a good voice for a guy like Jordan Cairo, especially with some of those struggles early on in his career? Absolutely. But at a certain point you do have to sink or swim and you got to find out, like I can't have this guy with you holding your hand the entire time. Eventually you've got to be the guy that is self-motivated. And I, I will give Jordan Cairo credit for this. I think he's also responded to being called out by Craig Burby. And so I, I do think that David Perron has serious value, but that off ice value that he has, maybe even the on ice, I, I, I think I prefer the value that I'm getting right now in Verona and Kapanen because they are young and they can be future core members of this team as well. I, I, teams that go through this development need players like David Perron. And that's a player that if I had two more years of it, I would have liked to have that voice around my younger players moving forward so that in two years when that contract would have been up and he would have retired and and that element of it too, I think would have been impactful having a player like that on this team uh, that goes a long way for the development of some of your younger players. Could, could I make the argument that Shen should be that guy then now like Shen should be taking the Perron role and, and that's, that's kind of where I was going to go is one. I do think I we've seen like, I haven't seen much difference in Kairou's game from this year and last year defensively. I, I do agree. He's tightened it up a little bit of late since being called out. But I, I, I think the other thing of this is I still think they have kind of that Perron voice. It's not the same guy, of course, but I, I think that's kind of Braden Chen. And if you had Perron here plus Braden Chen, I do think Thomas and Kairou would still be kind of, I don't want to say hiding because I don't think that's the right word, but they'd be hiding in the background in this leadership kind of view. I mean, we saw it this year when they were struggling 
Kyron Thomas sometimes did not have to speak to the media when O'Reilly was here. So, uh, so if Perron's here, I think that same thing's occurring, and they're not going through this growth phase of becoming leaders. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up next, you give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. One four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for better to forget it in a little less than 10 minutes. We'll be talking to Jerry Brewer. He's a national columnist for the Washington post. He had an excellent piece the other day on Missouri head basketball coach, Dennis Gates. Want to get his thoughts on why he thinks Dennis Gates could be one of the best coaches in the country. We'll ask Jerry Brewer about that coming up in about 10 minutes, but let's start with this from the three, one, four guys, better to forget it. Jordan Walker will eventually become the long-term replacement at first base. For Paul Goldschmidt. Ooh, I like this because I actually was running through a scenario like this in my head the other day. Did it include Mike Trout then coming to play in the outfield for the Cardinals? No, for some reason I had like Gore moving over to first. I don't know what was wrong with me. Okay. But, uh, I'll, I'll forget it because I, I think they'll, I think they'll, they like Walker in the outfield. I, I think they like his arm in the outfield. So I think they'll keep him in the outfield and and maybe I just heard the question wrong. I think Goldie will be back after the end of his deal because he's a legacy player. If if the Cardinals were as cold-hearted as my homie Doug Armstrong, man, he'd be he's gone. cold-hearted. And we would need a new first baseman. But I, I think Goldie will be back when his deal's up. He'll retire a Cardinal. And I at that point, Walker will have spent like four or five years in the outfield. So Yeah, I'm going to forget this one also. I think that first baseman replacement after Goldie is going to be Juan Yepes or an Alec Burleson. Jordan Walker, you're going to need some defense in the outfield. I don't know what's going to happen with Carlson or O'Neill in the next couple of years, but by the time Goldie is done as a Cardinal, as a major leaguer, you're going to need some type of stud in the outfield, and that's Jordan Walker. So by the time he signs his next contract, Paul Goldschmidt's probably going to be about 37 years old. He is going to be about 37 years old. I, I think that'll be like a one or a two year deal. I don't know how much longer Goldie's going to want to play at that point. He loves golfing. And I would imagine he just wants to hang out with his family and play some golf. He's already, I believe, going to be a Hall of Famer. If he John continues 2.0. two, three more years of production at the level that he has been recently. He got the MVP. He has locked up what is very likely going to be a Hall of Fame resume at the end of his time here in St. Louis. So even if he does resign, I do believe that Jordan Walker will be his replacement. Jordan Walker is 21 years old. He's 6'5 and about 250. That is not a guy that I want spending 160 games in the outfield when he's 25. At that point in time, I do think eventually he will spend the majority of his time at first base. Can you play him in the outfield occasionally? Absolutely. Especially if like a Juan Yepes, you want to get him in the field. Sure. He can have some games out there, but I do think eventually Jordan Walker's primary position will be first base. And that is not a bad thing. I think he can be a really good first baseman over there. You need somebody that can bring some defensive value. We've seen that in the past, what it looks like when you don't have any defense at first base. I think he's the guy. So I would say I'm betting it. I think Jordan Walker's long-term position is going to be first base. T-Bone, what do you have for bet it or forget it? Bet it or forget it. The Cardinals will have more than three 
position players make the all-star team this year or all-star game i should say more than three more than or three set posi- it at two and a half set it at three and a half so mm, bet okay. it or forget it more than three and a half cardinals position players not pitchers position players make the all-star team forget it because every freaking team has to have some type of representative and we know how that goes as much as i believe arenado goldie Three and a half is tough, man. Just to give you an idea, Contreras last year they would have. Last year this would have hit. Now, granted, Albert got in last year, but it would have right. been Goldie, Arnado, Contreras, who made it as a Cub last year, and then Albert. I'm betting it. I think that you got your three guys on the infield. So catcher, you've got Wilson Contreras. First base, you got Goldie. Third base, you got Arnado. I think you can lock those in right now, as long as they don't something weird happens. I think you get one outfielder. I don't know right now who that will be. I'm not going to predict which one of the outfielders will get into the all-star game, but I think at least one of them will. So I I'll bet this. I think that you get four position players into the all-star game this year. T-Bone, where are you going with? I'm going to bet it too, because I think it will be Goldie Arnato. I do think Contreras will make the all-star team. And then it's either going to be O'Neal Walker or, and I think he's a dark horse candidate because man, I'm falling back in love. Nolan Gorman, Stormin Norman with, his wow. left-handed power. Jesus. I I don't know if he'll get the at-bats to do it, but could I see where, like, he he just becomes an everyday DH slash second baseman for the Cardinals and fans fall in love with, you know, 25 home runs or whatever he could hit before the All-Star break? Yeah, I, I could see where he could make the All-Star How team. many Cubs got in last year? Was it just Contreras? Was he, the half like, the lone made, representative? I know half made it. The only reason I, I don't believe Contreras gets in unless he just has a superb season is because... Somebody's got to get a representative, and I think a Milwaukee Brewers team might get their catcher in, depending on how well, he performs. Pitcher, probably. Yeah. I, force tough. I hate the fact that everybody has to have some type of rep in there. I, I would set it at three. That would be my number. Uh, all right, Alex, what do you have for us in Better to Forget It today? Uh, better to Forget It, Doug Armstrong makes the biggest move this upcoming offseason. Most significant move, I'll say, of any general manager in the offseason. Oh, forget it. I would be shocked. I think I'm going to forget it, too. I, I can't see him making a big splash this offseason unless. No, I was going to say unless he like trades up like for like number two, number three. But even then, I don't even know if that would compare to whatever some free he agent said in his press could be. availability that he wasn't expecting to make any moves for multi-year guys. So I, I would be pretty surprised by this. I, I'm going to bet this one because I think that biggest move in the offseason is him moving up into the top five if they don't get there. Think somebody will move out? Yeah. Because if you got the opportunity to make three selections, I think so. Interesting. Coming up next, we're talking to Jerry Brewer. He's a national columnist for the Washington Post, and he had a great column the other day on Missouri men's basketball coach Dennis Gates. Want to get his thoughts on why he believes he could be one of the best coaches in the country. What does he think Dennis Gates can do at Mizzou? We'll talk to Jerry Brewer about that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It was a frustrating end. 
into the season for our Missouri Tigers, but they put together one heck of a bounce back season under under first year head coach Dennis Gates. He was rewarded for that season by a contract extension and a sizable raise from the Missouri administration. And one man who was paying attention to the job that Dennis Gates did was Jerry Brewer. He is a columnist for the Washington Post. That is where you can find his work, including his recent column on Dennis Gates titled Missouri coach Dennis Gates could transform college basketball. Some high praise from Jerry Brewer, the national sports columnist for the Washington Post. Jerry, we appreciate the time as always, man. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. So uh, as a Missouri fan myself, I certainly was caught. Your your, uh, column caught my attention Explain to us where this idea came from in the column and what was your experience like doing some of the research and the legwork to find out more about Missouri coach Dennis Gates? Yeah, when I, when I talk about transform college basketball, I'm talking about the culture of, of coaching. And I think Dennis Gates, at 43 years old, the job that he's done at Cleveland State and now what he's getting started at Missouri and the manner in which he coaches, uh, just a very – interpersonal communicator, very much in control of his emotions, very much focused on uh, loving the players while also challenging them. I think the more success that he has, the more that that style could become popular in the game. And I think that's how you reach today's player in this era in which you can transfer one time without being penalized for it. And then also in with NIL and all the other challenges, so many coaches are either old school and they're getting out of the game. You see all the legends that are retiring or being forced to retire, like Jim Beheim. Hmm. And then you also see all, all the guys that are still in the game and are resisting and almost putting it all the blame on today's player. Uh, Dennis Gates has an opportunity or, or, or just his style – is one in which he's going to get to know guys and get to understand what truly motivates them. And you've seen magic happen already with Cleveland State and how down that program was and how late he was in getting to them at the end of July and what he was able to do by year two at Cleveland State. And this side of Jerome Tang and what's going on in Kansas State uh, Missouri had, had just an amazing um, one-year breakthrough. Um, and if not for Jerome Tain in, in Kansas State, I think we would be, be looking at, at Dennis Gates as, as the most dramatic uh, one-year turnaround in the sport this year. So, Jerry, when you say that other coaches could start looking towards a Dennis Gates just in terms of what he has done this season and what he did with Cleveland State, what, what do you believe sets him above the rest? Uh, emotional intelligence, uh, for certain, right? Like really, really understanding, um, uh, people and how to deal with them and, um, uh, understanding that behavior is communication. And instead of trying to force people to, to be a cookie cutter, really embracing their individuality, <clears throat> excuse me, and really meeting them at their humanity. Uh, that's what he's all about, and I think that's why he's been able to have success uh, so far in his career. 
We're talking to Jerry Brewer. You can find his work in the Washington Post where he's a national sports columnist. Also follow him on Twitter at his name, at Jerry Brewer. Had a fantastic piece on Dennis Gates, the man and the coach. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the coaching side of things for him, Jerry, in terms of an on-court product as well. Because off the court, we've talked with Dennis. Dennis, we've seen the way that he approaches things. On the court, I mean, the the 25-10 and record this year, the fact that he made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament, something that Missouri has not done in more than a decade, that's the stuff that really caught fans' attention this year. In terms of the on-court product, what is it about Dennis Gates as a coach that you think makes him successful? Is it something schematic? Is it about his ability to get the right players? What is it about Dennis Gates that helps him on the court? Yeah, I think I think he's um uh I think he's just he's got a got a nice way um uh, he's resourceful. Let, let let's put it that way. Um he's uh I think he can take a lot of different combinations of teams and make it work. Uh when I look at that Missouri team, that there's not a lot on 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 the surface that's all that impressive. Uh you know, I mean what we're talking about you're taking, um, you know, a couple of holdovers, um, you know, one most prominently, and then like a bunch of Horizon League guys, essentially. And they played their butts off. Um, and when we talk about that resourcefulness, uh, I don't think they'll always play just this full court, in your face pressure defense. Uh, I, I think um, that as he establishes things, I think defensively they're going to be a lot more like Florida State was when they really got it going, when you have some length. And when you've got some length, I don't think you're going to always be feast or famine in terms of pressure defense, although I think his defensive style is always going to be aggressive. So getting that team, they're on the small side and really creating a defensive system that worked for them, that helped them uh, create some havoc. they're a terrible rebounding team uh, because of how small they were and, and being able to kind of like figure out something to work your way through that. Uh, that was really genius. Uh, offensively, uh, um, you know, when he calls a timeout and he draws up something, I like the stuff that they run uh, more times than not. I think they did a, a good job of executing it, even if they didn't get a bucket out of it. Um, uh, so those kind of like in-game adjustments, there's a lot of things they had to do on the fly because they just don't have a lot. Uh, that that impressed me. I, I think their their offensive system is such a hybrid of a lot of different concepts. But I love how they have this read and react system, which is very much um, Golden State Warriors style. And the Golden State Warriors kind of modernized and brought a, a pro style to the Princeton offense. And so you see certain cuts and, and those kinds of things, certain concepts uh, that come out of the Princeton offense, uh, which is really, really interesting to me. And I would love to see it when you get, say, like a six-foot-nine four-man who's a playmaker out there. Similar, it doesn't have to be like an extraordinary like future pro guy. I mean, when you look at, Princeton, uh, who just beat him, uh, uh, Tosan, uh, their, their, their power forward and the way that he was able to pass the ball and how that just messed up uh, Missouri's uh, total defensive uh, game plan. 
uh, I can see a day a day coming when when there's a type of player like that at Mizzou uh, that's going to help bring that offense to another level. So um, those are just kind of the things, and uh, I think what he did this year worked for this team uh, as they evolve. They're going to play different styles and get the best out of their players. And I really love that in terms of being able to sustain success. When you talked to people around Dennis Gates, whether it was people within the current program or people that have seen him or talked with him or been a part of his staff in previous iterations of of where uh, Dennis Gates has been, what did you learn about Dennis, the coach, the man, whatever it ends up being, by talking to those around him? What specifically stood out to you, Jerry? Man, it's it's crazy. I've never been a, it's been very rare in my career in which you call and you ask people about someone that people have been so effusive and praised. But the crazy thing about it was um Leonard Hamilton calling back twice to share more bits of information about Dennis Gates. Ben Braun, the former uh Cal coach who recruited uh Dennis to Cal, um He's called me like four times. You know, he's still talking about Dennis even after they lost. Um, The things I I didn't even share because the story got long, the quotes from uh, Desiree, uh, the AD, and the things that she would say about him, the things that that CY said about him, the things the players said about him. Uh, You know, like a lot of times when you're writing things that I don't think people realize sometimes is that just to be able to go confidently – uh, with, with, with certain premises, there's a lot of um, corroboration of what you're thinking that goes on that may not see its way into print. And it's just about as solid as you could possibly get. Um, I mean, I felt very confident in writing this that I wasn't taking a leap of faith at all, that this is who Dennis Gates is. And I think that bodes really, really well um, for Missouri. And now next season may not be as gl- as glorious as you want it to be, but I think they, you know, from, say, year three, year four on with Dennis Gates, as long as they can keep him there and they got him in a, in a nice contract now, um, I think it's just going to be a wonderful era of, of consistency for this program, which they've been trying to get back to for a long time. Do you think he can do at Mizzou what Leonard Hamilton has done at Florida State? Absolutely. Um, absolutely, I do. Uh, I mean, some of the dynamics are going to change in the SEC uh, coming forward when you have a uh, if Texas. Um, and I don't, who knows what's going to happen there coming off of uh, uh, Chris Beard, if they retain Rodney Terry or if they think they can get a coach who's better than him. Uh, the Oklahoma program is down right now, but they won't be down for very long. So um, the SEC is just going to be a tremendous basketball league in addition to football. Uh, so um, that's going to complicate some matters. Uh, but I just think that you have to be adaptable in today's game. And I think you're going to find out in Dennis Gates that he can adapt to a lot of different situations. And like I said, I'm not sure they make the tournament next year, uh, and, and people are just going to have to kind of deal with that. And that's where it would have been wonderful for them to get one more to get one more game and, and make it to the Sweet 16 in year one. Um, and that's a little bit bitter that they lost to Princeton, I guess. But Princeton is really good, and, and, and I, I think people will realize next week um, exactly how good Princeton is. But 
Um, yeah, next year could be kind of tough because he set the standards really high. But, again, like I wouldn't probably predict them. Like, let's see how the roster goes. But um, I wouldn't put it past them either. Like, I, I, I think um, Dennis Gates has a quality in him that kind of reminds me of Ed Cooley, who just left Providence for Georgetown. And, and, and that quality is he can take almost anything and make it a 20-win team. Um, and uh, I think that, like I said, from year three on, I think there's going to be a great, great, great run of consistency. And then the question becomes how, how high can your ceiling get? And that's where we'll – I think we'll, we've got to find out even more there. There's still some stuff to find out. He's only been a coach for four years. Um, how does his way of doing things work when he starts to get McDonald's All-Americans in there? Sure. Um, and, and, and guys who uh, have aspirations to go to the NBA after one or two years. Um, he's, no, he's not – as a head coach, he's not coached those kinds of players. But he did have those kinds of players at Florida State. Um, but I would be shocked. You know, I'll just say I'll be shocked if within these first five years that he hasn't made a deep tournament run. Um, and I'm talking Elite Eight. Jerry, it's been great to catch up with you, man. You're as high on Dennis Gates as we are here locally, and it's always great to get a little bit of, uh, I would say, secondhand affirmation on the guy that we are able to see on a regular basis. So thanks for hopping on with us. Great piece over in the Washington Post. We wish you all the best and enjoy the rest of this NCAA tournament. All right. Take it easy. Absolutely. Same to you. That's Jerry Brewer, national sports columnist for the Washington Post, joining us here on 101 ESPN. Highly appreciate his time. Alex, if you're able to recreate what Florida State has done under Leonard Hamilton, I mean, first of all, that's a long-term coach. He's been at Florida State now for 20 years. That's the kind of thing that Missouri hasn't had since Norm Stewart. They haven't been able to find a guy that's just able to get there and then stay there over the long haul. The other thing, and to his point on, he'd be shocked if uh, Dennis Gates isn't able to make at least an Elite Eight run at some point in the next five years. Man, you look, especially after Leonard Hamilton was able to get this thing up and running at Florida State, and that was not a good program whenever he got there. They've been to a few different Sweet 16s. They've been to an Elite Eight. This is a program that, especially from like 2017 up until 2021 or so, that like five-year stretch, and Florida State was one of the better programs in the country. They were producing pros regularly. So if you're able to get something like that going here at Mizzou, I think every Mizzou fan will sign up today. Yeah, the part that got me is what he said. You know, what happens Excuse me. when uh, he starts getting the uh, McDonald's All-Americans on the team? And that's the part where you got the transfer portal compared to when you start recruiting the actual young talent to get to the team. That's the part that I'm curious with, and that's the part I would assume Leonard Hamilton had all of the success with. Once you start showcasing your ability to coach and have that relationship with the players that is different from other coaches around basketball, specifically in the SEC, and you start recruiting that top talent, that's where Dennis Gates takes over and becomes that long-term coach. I mean, heck, he's already proven that by locking up an extension after one season yep. with Mizzou. I, I will be fascinated, and Jerry kind of referenced this, don't expect Missouri to play like they did this past year. And I, I'll be fascinated to know how he ends up developing because he did show signs of a coach that isn't, hey, this is the system we're going to run, and this is how it's going to be done. No, he's going to be – the great coaches will adjust, 
And I think that Dennis Gates is going to be that guy to where he'll look at his roster and say, okay, I would prefer to play this style, but I can see that we're not going to be good at it, so we can adjust and do that. You mentioned the loss to Princeton. He tried bringing the press up court. He tried to go to the 1-3-1 zone. He tried a little bit of man-to-man defense. Like His flexibility and hearing kind of Jerry kind of reaffirm what I was thinking of, hey, he's going to try it different ways throughout his time here at Missouri. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how he develops because we've seen he has a great relationship with the players. He can get the best out of them. Now wait till he's able to just kind of mold his system into what he really wants with the talent he brings in. And Tanner, I know you're a big NBA guy, so some of these names will connect with you. Terrence Mann, Patrick Williams, Jonathan Isaac, Dwayne Bacon, Scotty Barnes. These are players that played for Leonard Hamilton. Most of them also played for Dennis Gates while he was at Florida State. He was not the head man there, and things change when you're the guy that is making all of the decisions, but he's coached some pretty significant talents before, and most of those guys that I just mentioned were either one or two years in college. I have a feeling he's going to be able to make it work with those players. I am curious, playing style-wise, though, what that ends up looking like, as he's got this length that they're not getting crushed on the boards offensively anymore. Uh, That's the kind of thing that can make Mizzou go from a fun, interesting story to a hot damn, this thing looks real good real quick under Dennis Gates. So big thanks to Jerry Brewer for joining us today. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer? So, guys, let's all just pretend that we're all professional athletes. I know, Tanner, you you were in college. And it's not yeah. hard to imagine for the three of us. That's, that's very true. We're all great at something. Um, and, you know, there's money is obviously the first thing that entices you to sign with the team when you're a free agent. But then there's that extra stuff. You know, maybe there's an endorsements with a, a sandwich company from that state. Or maybe there's something else. Living somewhere that I would enjoy living. Maybe, yeah. Like San Diego, I would love to play for the Padres. I'm available, by the way. Hey, would love to play for Vegas because I love Vegas. So does Jimmy G. Jimmy G, of course, a a Vegas Raider now. Here, uh, adult film stars are highly available in Las Vegas. Well, he's got experience with that. (laughs) And it goes beyond adult film stars. uh, Adult brothels out in Vegas. What? Uh, so apparently Jimmy G has been offered, quote, free sex for life from an, a brothel in Vegas because he is now a Vegas Raider. I don't think Jimmy G is too worried about that right now. If I looked like Jimmy G, I'm, I'm going to guess this. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's offered to him. You know, I don't. Did Derek Carr have this offer to him when he was a Vegas Raider? I didn't hear reports of, hey, Derek, we want you to stay here. Listen, man, I, I don't know if you've ever heard an interview with Derek Carr. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't know that Derek Carr has a free sex for life kind of guy. No, I don't think that's his thing. I think he like this is the one of the ironic parts of the Derek Carr storyline. He has now played in Las Vegas, Oakland and New Orleans of all the quarterbacks in the league. He's the one that got that opportunity. That's certainly an interesting uh, path for a guy like Derek. And apparently it wasn't just one of them. Two of them offered it up for Jimmy really? G. So now there's a battle. Have you guys ever watched the uh, the show How I Met Your Mother? 
Yes. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character, yeah. like he's he's recruiting strip clubs to endorse him. Jimmy G's essentially got two brothels that are trying to like uh, be a part of his future in Vegas. I'm surprised you don't have a strip club endorsement yet, Alex. I feel uh, do, like that's right up your alley. Do I look like I go to a lot of strip clubs? Do you want me to answer that question, yes, honestly? Because I go to bed at eight <laughs> o'clock at night. Yeah, I was gonna say I can't. Hey man, they've got the early bird him. specials. They've got, from what I understand, I've a under- great dinner special. Yeah, and I've I under- bet the buffet's great. I, I if there's one can't look, get a better steak in town anywhere than I over in like Sajay. Buff- I don't like buffets in general. Um, but if there was one spot that I would refuse to eat food, it would be at a strip club. Oh, you've never had the steak. No. Just no. ask, who was the NBA player the that got kicked great. out of the bubble for leaving to go get, quote-unquote, chicken the wings honey hot at wings. the place? That's what it was. But who was the player? God, it was somebody that went to Atlanta. Was it da- was, oh, I thought it was, like, Daniel House, no. but I think he snuck somebody into the bubble. No, it was, a, it was, it was like a... It was a point guard, shooting guard. Was it Patrick Beverly? Lou Williams. Lou Williams. Lou Williams. Sweet right. Lou Pepper Wings. The Lemon Pepper Chicken Wings. Sweet Lou. That's right. Magic no. Cities. T-Bone looks like the kind of guy that would take advantage of a strip club endorsement to be a so? part of the team. Yeah. Uh, got a little bit of Cardinals news to pass along. Yep. yep. This one is interesting. We'll talk about the latest transactions. Alex might have to sing a little bit of a song. And we'll tell you why now is not the time for Mason Wynn to get the call up, even if Paul DeYoung is not on the opening day roster. We'll do that all coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. out of Cardinals camp they have made a little bit or a couple of moves I don't think Alex is going to be thrilled about them alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kiley it's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN the major league camp roster now stands at 41 players after after the Cardinals have optioned two players down to Memphis one is Matthew Libertor that was pretty much expected I will say his last outing in spring training was super impressive. Ali Marmol called it the best that he's seen him so far. I don't think we've seen the end of Matthew Liberatore in St. Louis. I think he's going to still play a significant role for the 2023 Cardinals at some point, even though it's not on the opening day roster. The other one's a little more interesting. Alex, I have to admit, I fell for it. I fell for what Dakota Hudson said at the winter warmup. He was up there waxing poetically about Dusty Blake and how he's going to have more swing and miss stuff. And he's got the slider that he's been working on and it's all going to come together for him this year. It was just a matter of a matter of time. He's going to speed up his delivery. Everything's going to come together for him. That has not happened so far for him during spring training. He's got three strikeouts. He has had some poor performances, especially lately. He was essentially in a head-to-head battle with Jake Woodford. I think Jake Woodford's performance yesterday basically ended this thing for him. Dakota Hudson officially optioned down to AAA. Alex, your response? It's a sad day. Sad day for everybody. Um, do, you, do you need the music? or? Yeah, I might get choked up on this one, but T-Bone, can you cue it up for me? Yeah. Dak, you went into tr- spring training. Looking at a competition with Jake Woodford. Felt good about that one. We said the pitch clock was going to help. That didn't. You said you had more swing and miss stuff. That didn't happen. 
wasn't you close. still got hit around a lot. You burst on the scene in 2019 like a phoenix from the ashes. Yeah. Said, I'm here, mm. and that I'm ready to be the ace. Sorry, then injuries piled up. The only thing I could do is blame injuries for this one, Dak. I know you're the ace in the wings. Cardinals just never appreciated what you had to offer. And now you're going to go flourish around that barbecue in Memphis and good for you. Take it to another team and show them that you're the ace that everyone wanted them to be. Somebody on the text line says swing and miss stuff was added and that he misses the strike zone and other opponents don't swing at it. That's true. Fly high, Dak. Fly high. Mm, That was good. He'll be flying high as a redbird as opposed to a cardinal. I, 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 uh, I can't believe we got here. How did we get here, Dak? Well, here's how. Uh, he's appeared in three games so far in spring training, started one of them. He's thrown 8.2 innings, and in those eight and two-thirds innings, he has allowed 17 hits, six earned runs, two pretty. home runs, four walks, has just three strikeouts, and that is all adding up to a 6.23 ERA for one Dakota Hudson. I do think, again, we will see him at some point this season. I am less certain of that, though, than I am on... Matthew Liberator. I I was remind me next year when we go to winter warm up, Alex, not to fall for the guy that had the bad season that just talks the the good game. You you essentially just fell for the he's in the best shape. Yep, of I was his gonna life. say you I fell did. for the Paul DeYoung spring training last year. Yeah, yeah, or the Matt Carpenter. I I think I agree with Pika. I don't know. If we may see him. But I will say this, I think he got leapfrogged by Matthew Libertor in camp because I think Libertor looked a lot better. Oh, I think he's pretty low on the list right now. Like, if they had an emergency start situation, they somebody went down, knock on wood, fingers crossed this doesn't happen, but one of the Cardinal starters goes down. Well, Jake Woodford is the next man up. Jake Woodford goes down. I think Matthew Libertor is the next man up. Matthew Libertor goes down. I, I think they eventually get to Gordon Graceffo before they get to uh, Dakota Hudson. Graceffo goes down. I think it might be Connor Thomas. <laughs> like I think there are just other options. Maybe it's Michael McGreevy. There are other options significantly ahead of Dakota Hudson, and the problem for him is he's kind of in that Adam Wainwright role of, your real value is your ability to eat innings. And if you're not eating those innings because you're not good enough to do so, I don't know how you help this team because you don't have swing and miss stuff and you can't really be trusted in a double play setting because you walk too many batters to be able to come in in the old TJ McFarland role of get a ground ball to get out of an inning. I don't really know what his role is on this team. So I think there's a scenario where if he goes down and helps them in AAA this season... I wouldn't be totally shocked if Dakota Hudson is shipped out at some point this year if they end up needing if to he if he pitches well for Memphis, I could see them say like one more shot if they have to do that because I, I Gordon Graceffo, I, I don't see him leapfrogging Hudson because that might be the long play for the Cardinals of let's this this guy develop. If they get into a tight spot, it could be like one last chance for a Dakota Hudson if he pitches well in Memphis. If he doesn't pitch well in Memphis, then yeah, it's pretty much over. Let me put this another way. More likely to be on the Cardinals 40-man roster by the end of the season. Gordon Graceffo or Dakota Hudson? Oh, I think I, the answer well, is in Gordon In that case, Graceffo. I would go Gordon Graceffo, but I, I still believe at some point this season they'll look at Dak and say, you're pitching well, let's see what you got up here once more. I, I think I would go Gordon Graceffo in that case. I, I still could see a situation where like it's he probably has a month to quickly turn this around because in a month will be when Graceffo has been able to showcase. And if he shows better in AAA, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, we were talking last year while he was in Springfield 
that he could be getting a call up and skipping triple A. So they clearly see more upside in him than Dakota Hudson. So I wouldn't be shocked if we don't see Dakota Hudson again and it ends up being, you know what? We have someone else. It's it's kind of the conversation of it's different because he'll one's in triple A, one will be in the majors. Feels kind of like the conversation with Paul DeYoung, where, okay, yes, we have a serviceable veteran, if you want to call Hudson that. But we have somebody else in the Myers we think can do a more admirable job if we're in a pinch and we need, in this case, innings than at-bats. The other problem for him is, like, their rotation down in AAA is getting pretty stacked at this point in terms of, like, they they don't have enough spots, potentially, for the number of starters that they want to consistently get innings. You're going to have Libertor down there. I would assume he'll probably be starting for them. You're going to have Dakota Hudson. You're going to have Connor Thomas. I'm guessing you'll have Gordon Graceffo and Michael McGreevy. Here in the not-too-distant future, like if they send Andre Pallante down, for example, I think he'll probably start for Memphis. In that scenario, you're going to a six-man rotation already, and then if anybody is ready to come up, there comes a point in time where it's like, hey, Dakota, you either have to be a legit bullpen guy for us in AAA, or maybe they just have to remove him from the roster, and that 40-man spot becomes more valuable than what Dakota Hudson is able to give them. I don't think this is a DFA situation. I do think there are other teams that would value what Dakota Hudson brings to the table. Like If you're a non-contender, the Royals, one of the Rockies, somebody like that, I think you give give him a shot. It's worth giving up something, a a lottery ticket prospect. Um, But I do think that Dakota Hudson, this this was a huge spring training for him. And it just did not work the way that anybody was hoping if you were somebody that still had any sort of belief uh, for Dakota Hudson. Coming up next, we're talking to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. I want to ask him the question that we talked about earlier today. If Joel Hofer continues performing well, what does that do for our evaluation this season of Jordan Bennington? And David Perron returns to St. Louis tonight. What does JR make of the decision to move on from him at this point? Now that we know the season obviously did not go according to plan. We'll talk to JR about all of that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend and the Blues insider for The Athletic. He is Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. JR, how you doing today, my friend? Doing good, PK. Alex Tanner, what's happening? Uh, doing well, man. Great piece earlier today, taking us all kind of behind the scenes on what it was like for you as you experienced last offseason on will he or won't he re-sign with the David Perron saga. Perron back in St. Louis tonight against the St. Louis Blues. Alex will have pregame for that one starting at 6 o'clock. Uh, JR, now, with the benefit of hindsight, you know what this season has been like. How do you now feel about the Blues deciding not to re-sign David Perron? And is that different than how you felt at the time when they decided to let him walk? Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. I think it's probably changed a little bit. Uh, but you look at the situation, you got to look back at it uh, when it happened. Uh, you felt like uh, David Perron meant a lot to this team. He certainly meant a lot. You know, chemistry, Ryan O'Reilly. Ryan O'Reilly didn't get off to a, a great start there, and they had a lot of right-wingers for him. Uh, so did things kind of de- derail because David Prawn wasn't here? I think you could mention that as a factor for sure. But is the defense any better? 
if you re-sign David Prawn, don't bring back Nick Letty. I mean, what kind of seasons are we talking about for Pareko Krug? you got to imagine that uh, things unravel the same as they did defensively. And if you don't have Nick Letty, which you, you wouldn't have been able to re-sign him if you bring back David Prawn, could it have been even worse defensively? I don't know that it could have gotten any worse. Uh, but I think those are questions that pop up in your head. You know, conversely, now you look at it and you've seen how it's played out. You know, if David Prawn signed a one-year extension, which I don't think he would have done, you would have been moving him at the trade deadline. And if you had signed him for two years, let's say, you know, now you got a David Prawn on the books for four or five million for next year when you're kind of in the middle of a retool. So it probably worked out you know, as as well as it could have under the circumstances and how this season played out, because I don't know that the Blues would be interested in having a David Prawn the next couple of years as they try to bring some of these younger players aboard. So, JR, down this Joel Hofer path, um, a little surprised, and I shouldn't be because, I mean, heck, he's played wonderful, and then Craig Berube even said that earlier today. I mean, he's starting tonight because of his performance. But, man, what are the repercussions for this team of, of going to Joel Hofer in this spot just moving forward? Because now we're getting back into the scenario that Bennington had told you in the offseason a little bit messed with his head of now you got a little bit of a goalie competition. Yeah, this is a, this is a tough one to analyze here. It really is. And I think a lot of people might hear that and say, why? Hofer's played great the past couple games. Stick with him. And I can certainly understand that. But you look at uh, Jordan Bennington and, you know, are they penalizing Jordan Bennington for what he did a few games ago with uh, the antics? Uh, I don't know. Craig Bruby said after the game that he felt like what he did was, was right and something needed to be done in that situation. Are they looking at it simply as Bennington hasn't played well lately, uh, which he hasn't? Uh, Craig Bruby did say today, I asked him, what have you thought of Bennington's play? He said it's been up and down. So, you know, I think the surprise for me, Alex, was that they kept Joel Hofer up here and they're going to have the three goalies and they're not sending back Joel Hofer to uh, Springfield where he's kind of leading that playoff charge. Uh, when Craig Bruby said the other night he's not going down, I was like, come again? <laughs> but, I think, but I think once you decide to keep him up here, I think you almost have to play him. Like, what's the point in him being the backup goaltender tonight or the third guy, you know, who's just getting NHL practice time? He can be better served probably going down and trying to get that team uh, into a playoffs. So I think that uh, the fact that he's starting tonight probably shouldn't be a surprise, uh, but I think that had to be a tough conversation with Jordan Bennington. Uh, I asked Craig Bruby that, and he said, yeah, it was. Uh, but at the same time, this is pro sports. These guys understand, and, and they've got to continue to work hard talking about Bennington and Grice. But, hey, bottom line, listen, uh, Grice's uh, era in St. Louis is going to be over here in a couple weeks, so it basically comes down to Bennington and Holfer. Holfer's playing well, and that's who the team decided to start tonight. So I guess here's a follow-up question to that, Jr. because in his first two games, as you mentioned, he's been outstanding. Now, Alex has mentioned this, and I think it's totally reasonable to do so. I think the team in general has played a little better over the last two games, and that's part of it. But, I mean, some of the numbers aren't all that dissimilar from what I've seen against Benner. I mean, 68 shots in two games. They've given up 66 scoring chances. According to Natural Stat Trick, 27 of those have been the high-danger variety. So there's, there's some stuff that he's just keeping out of the net the way that you would hope to see. If he continues doing that, big if, but if he continues performing at a very high level, Jr. How, if at all, does that change the way that we are evaluating Jordan Bennington? Because I feel like all season long we've said he's playing okay, but the defense in front of him is pretty poor, and that's why the numbers don't show it. How at all, if at all, does it change your evaluation of Bennington if we are able to see another goalie come in and perform better in front of him? 
Yeah, it's certainly a fair question. I think my first uh, initial reaction is it's a little bit apples and oranges because you had a team the entire season that was supposed to be better than it was, and, and he was playing outstanding. Uh, the team was not playing well in, in front of him. Uh, but then you get to the trade deadline, you move some guys. You know, Now things at the rink are just a little bit more laid back than they were a month, two months, three months ago. And you're going to come up a stretch here where you're playing uh, inferior uh, teams. You know, I think you could say that about the Blues. They're definitely an inferior team. But, you know, the schedule isn't all that great down the stretch. So uh, if Hofer lights it up, is that because of him and because the team likes playing better in front of him and, and does play better in front of him? Or is that a reflection that, you know, as much credit as we gave Jordan Bennington, you know, maybe it wasn't uh, – that situation maybe people look at it and say he could have played better look joel hofer's doing the same thing and the team's winning and he's playing well uh, i think there's definitely going to be some room to look at it that way like maybe jordan bennington's play just wasn't up to snuff even though it looked like he gave the team a chance to win most nights if joel hofer uh, continues to play the way he has for the next uh, couple weeks uh, I just will stand by what I've been saying for a while now is that I think up until recently, there weren't too many games that you could look at Jordan Bennington and say he was the problem. Like he's on a short list of MVPs on a terrible, terrible season for this team. You know, I think he's on that short list, but I agree with Craig Bruby that the play has been up and down uh, here lately. And that's why uh, they're going to go to Hofer here. JR, on the offensive side of things, um, as much as I've enjoyed seeing the opportunity for Alexei Toropchenko, I do feel like I'm coming to the end of the road with him just because I love what he provides in the energy, but maybe that finishing ability just isn't there for him. And I know Jake Neighbors is coming back tonight, starts on the fourth line. Are, are we going to get to the point maybe a couple of games from now when Jake Neighbors gets his legs back that Neighbors is playing in that top six role of Alexei Toropchenko and Toropchenko's back down to the fourth line? Yeah, I think eventually. And I think, you know, next season it's going to start out with Toropchenko's bottom six, you know, maybe fourth line. I just think they needed some different energy. And, of course, after moving O'Reilly and Tarasenko, they needed a player up there. You know, they've had a couple of guys like Neighbors injured, so they couldn't pit him up there. Maybe he would have been uh, if he weren't hurt. Um, so I think Toropchenko's been giving you – you know, some of what you need up there, you definitely need guys driving to the net. We've seen a few goals scored because of what Torpchenko was doing, even though he didn't get an assist on the play. Um, he's definitely going to need that finishing touch, Alex, like you say, if he's going to be a top-six player in the NHL. I do think, you know, while it might not be a long future there, I do think he can move up the lineup like uh, like an Ivan Barbashev did and kind of fill in and in spots there. But, yeah, I think his, his future, his home is going to be – in that bottom six and being heavy on that four check and doing some of the things we've seen, especially if he just doesn't have that scoring touch, it'd be tough to keep him in the lineup in that spot if he doesn't have that scoring touch. But I think he's done a lot of good things. He's done what they've asked of him. Uh, but I do think that uh, next year you can probably pencil him in on that fourth line. JR, we appreciate the time as always, man. We'll be reading the work over at The Athletic and following you on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Have fun at the game tonight. Enjoy your time with David Perron. We'll talk with you again next week. All right, thanks, boys. Thanks take, a lot. Take it easy. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. Alex, the Blues have a couple of big games coming up. These next two are against Detroit. Detroit is currently sitting at 10th in the NHL draft lottery. The Blues are at 9th. Here are the other teams that are coming up on the schedule. JR mentioned it's not a good schedule coming up. That is 100% correct. Anaheim coming up after the two against Detroit. They're fourth in the draft lottery right now. Then LA, they're very good. But then Vancouver, they're eighth. Chicago, they're third. 
There's some moving and shaking that could take place within the NHL draft lottery, depending on what the results look like in those games. These games almost count for double because they both impact you and the team that you're going up against. It's a weird thing to say. I'm like rooting for Joel Hofer to play really well tonight. I'm rooting for the young players to look really great. And then for the blues to lose like three to two. In in regulation. Yeah. It's it's a super weird spot to be at, but with 13 games remaining, now I am actually rooting for the draft lottery, for things to go in their direction. The tough part about it, too, is Arizona and Vancouver have been playing much better as of late. And because you've started to play better, you've distanced yourself, although they are within the same points or two points of you, but now you're catching up with Detroit. You're five points behind the Buffalo Sabres, and the Buffalo Sabres have dipped off a little bit. Here's what, and look, as much as we joke around about Connor Bedard, the percentages already don't look great. Yep. Don't fall out of the bottom 12 because the way that the NHL draft lottery works is you have an opportunity to move up 10. Don't fall out of the bottom 12. So help me on this real quick. For those of you in the listening audience right now that aren't super familiar with the lottery, and listen, you, you shouldn't be. It hasn't been something that we've really paid attention to here in St. Louis lately. I was reading the other day about it, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Alex. The way that the draft lottery works now is not where you could move up. Like It, it doesn't dr- take in, uh, what is it, the, the little balls that you would get for every slot. It's just number one, right? We're just draft, the, the draft lottery just drafting for the first one. For one and two. For one and two. And then everything else just goes in order, correct? Yes, but so if people remember correctly, back in 2019, that was the year that Chicago uh, moved all the way up to the third overall pick. And Chicago finished that season as the, uh, what were they? They finished 20th overall in the National Hockey League. So they moved up the 10 spots that you can move up. That's... That, so you're doing the lottery for the first and second pick. Correct. But teams have an opportunity to move up 10 spots. Now, it's a very small percentage, but you can move. Let's say you finish as the 13th worst team in the National Hockey League. You can move up 10 spots to be the third overall pick. If you win the lottery. If you win the lottery. That's what the ball's come into play for. What I'm saying is after those two spots are, are selected, like let's say Columbus, for example, Columbus and San Jose – they're the ones that end up winning the lottery for one, two. They're currently in those slots. Everything else just remains the same, right? They Yeah, so so they'll start from the the team that was closest to making the playoffs that just missed. They'll start from there. 16th. All the way up. 16th, 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th. Let's say. And if they skip your slot, that means that, that means you've, you've moved won up. the lottery and you moved up. And you're in the top two. So like if the Blues, the Blues right now are at ninth. If you don't see them come off the board at nine, then that, then that means, means they're, they're picking one or two. One or two. Absolutely. And if they, it's not going to be this way, but if they're not picking one or two, they will be picking nine. Correct? Yeah. yeah Those exactly. are the only spots that are yeah. available to so you. So you can't just you like finish. move up a little bit in the draft lottery. You're moving up either all the way to the top of the board or you're not moving up at all. Right. Reason why I find this to be important. I, and I think it's a super important clarification so here. I, uh, let me correct myself real quick. You can, they, they do the lottery one through three. Because that's what happened with the Blackhawks in 2019. They do the lottery one through three. So you have an opportunity to move into the top three. 2019, and maybe they shifted that when they added a team, but 2019, it it was a 2.7% chance of picking second, 2.5% chance of picking first, and then they had an opportunity to a 3% chance of moving into the top three. I want to say you had it correct. I will check on that, but... The reason why I find this all to be really important and when it comes to the St. Louis Blues is because 
while the odds don't change a lot for you to get the number one or number two pick based on if you're picking, you know, sixth, you have the sixth best odds or ninth. What does change is the quality of the prospect that is at that specific pick. And so right now the blues are five points behind or ahead of, depending on how you want to look at it, Philadelphia for the sixth overall pick. This Philadelphia Flyers right now have a 7% chance to get the number one overall pick. The Blues have a 5%. Is that really all that significant? I mean, kind of, but not really. The thing that matters, though, is, Alex, you've talked a lot about the the class that is available this year. Man, getting into that like top five-ish, the quality of the prospect could be significantly different than what you're going to be able to get at nine. So it's not just about Connor Bedard or Fantilli. It's also about the rest of that top five that is in that elite tier of prospects this year. Yeah, in the draft. They're comping it to the 2015 one. And uh, I mean, one through 10, Miko Rantanen was selected 10th overall. If you get top five, that's great. You want to be in the top 10. Top 10 means you could have a player that could impact you next season or at worst two seasons from now. And they have indeed. They've updated it to just the top two. So it's just the top two slots that are available in the NHL. So, so if you fall to 13th worst in the National Hockey League, you're selecting 13th. If you select, if you fall to 12th, you can move up 10 slots. Does that make sense? So like, oh, I, I you have to be 12th. You couldn't worst. go into the top three. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So if, if you finish 13th worst, which I don't think is mathematically they're, they're possible, to, yeah. um, you're selecting there. So you want to be bottom 12th because that gives you an opportunity, albeit slight. To move into the top two. And the reason why you want to lose right now is because, as Alex mentioned, Arizona and Vancouver are playing well. Yep. If they can continue falling down in these draft order slots right now, Philadelphia is only five points worse or better than you, depending on how you want to look at it. And then you start getting into the top five-ish, and that's where you really get into that elite tier of prospects in, the, in this year's draft. So while I am rooting for Joel Hofer to play well, I am really rooting for the Blues to lose the next couple of games. All right, one nothing loss. Here we go. And if you lose loss. these two games, you're adding a buffer between you and Detroit as well because they are the team that is 10th, and that adds a little bit of a floor to where you could potentially get to. Well, the so, good news for these pe- next two games are huge. The good news for people tonight is I would expect Vili Huso to start in both games, although did Vili play last night? Because they played last night against Florida. I'm not going to lie. I did not watch that game. Uh, well, what are you doing, man? You're supposed to be paying well, attention you know, to Japan that. Japan and Mexico were playing. It was kind of fun. I was having fun. Were you in, Were you having a fun time? I was. Trying to find out if Huso played. Of course, NHL.com and is I starting hope, real slow I, right I now. Vili Huso played last night, but he has also played like every game. For so that really weeks. sucks because I doubt they'll play. Vili Huso will probably oh. play on Thursday. I was just going to say, the good news is you'll have a guy who says, blank this team, I'm trying to beat them. Well, on the plus side, their backup goalie is basically Jordan Bennington on the season. You can take that for whatever it is worth. Coming up next, right. some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. NFL quick hitters alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Guys, people are all in on the Detroit Lions. I feel like the Detroit Lions this year are kind of the the sexy pick for people to to make that leap from good to potentially great. And it helps that Aaron Rodgers is likely leaving the division and that we all knew last year the Minnesota Vikings were frauds. So Dan Orlovsky was talking on ESPN earlier today 
he thinks they're more than just a contender for their own division. Detroit is sitting there right now with the additions that they made in the first week and the picks that they have. And if Brad Holmes, their general manager, hits on these picks like he did in his first couple drafts, Detroit not only is going to be in the conversation to win the NFC North, they're going to be in the conversation to win the NFC. Alex, yesterday at his introductory press conference, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, the newest safety for the Detroit Lions, previously with the Philadelphia Eagles, said the Lions are a little bit better than the Eagles are. Do you think the Lions are a real contender based on what they've done so far in the offseason? No, I don't think they're there yet, but I would say it's going to be very intriguing. And I, I, I do believe Orlovsky's absolutely correct. If you nail that sixth overall pick, if somebody dips down or maybe you package them together to move into the top four and get yourself a difference maker on the defensive side, I'd believe into it a little bit more. But as much as I want to sit here and say the Philadelphia Eagles took a step back and they did take a step back, they also still have Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts and still a very good offensive line. Defense took a step back, but they had a really good draft the last couple of years in terms of defensive players. Uh, I don't think it's clear cut that the Philadelphia Eagles are the best team in the NFC East. Cowboys, of course, are going to have something to say about that as well. But I don't know if I'm on board with Detroit being the best team in the NFC East. Yeah, I I don't think I'm there yet. I I think they're going to win their division, but I I don't know if I would say that they're a contender in the NFC just yet. I, I think they're probably a year away because... I look at them, and I they kind of remind me, and it's kind of different because, one, the AFC's loaded, and, two, this team has their franchise quarterback, and I don't think golf is that guy for Detroit. They kind of remind me of what Jacksonville was last year, where offensively they're probably going to be really good again, and there's still going to be some setbacks defensively. They probably win their division. They're maybe like 10-7, and seven, and they're going to be a trendy pick to go on, host a playoff game, and maybe pull off an upset and maybe get to the NFC Championship game, but I I don't think they should be considered a team that can win the NFC because I think they're behind the Eagles still, I think they're behind the Cowboys still, and I think they're behind the 49ers still. I would say that they are a legitimate contender because the difference from them to the Jags, like if you put the Jags last year... Last year's Jaguars and this year's NFC, I think they would have been a legitimate contender to potentially get to the Super Bowl. I wouldn't have favored them against the Philadelphia Eagles, but I think they would have at least had a shot in that game. I think that the NFC is super weak, dude. The Eagles are going to be worse this year than they were a year ago. That's not a shot against them. It's just the reality of the way that their offseason has gone. They have lost a lot of talent, especially on the defensive side of the football. It's going to make it hard to repeat what they did last year. I think the Cowboys might be a little bit better, but the Cowboys were already a flawed team. I think the Lions could be really good. They've added three defensive backs to their defense so far this offseason. They've got the number six overall pick. They also have the number 18 overall pick. They've got Jamison Williams, who's actually going to be healthy this year. And I think he's potentially a star wide receiver in the NFL. And then they basically just traded out their running back last year and Jamal Williams for David Montgomery. I think that's a neutral move. I don't think they got better or worse. I think the Lions have a real shot to be able to get out of the NFC. I'm not saying that you would you should pick them. I would still take the Eagles probably as the early season favorite. But I think the Lions are in that tier with the Eagles, the Cowboys, and the 49ers. I think it's those four for me. That's the three teams, and then I'd have the Lions. But I do believe the Lions will be the best team in the NFC North. Absolutely. E- easily the best team. Big storyline to continue watching throughout the NFL offseason is Austin Eckler. Yesterday, he was speaking on a podcast, and he said, quote, I am so underpaid right now that I am relentlessly pursuing a long-term contract. He and the Chargers have both made it pretty clear that contract is not coming from Los Angeles. 
He then added that he's looking for something. He's, he thinks he's like getting half of what he's worth, which means he believes he's worth about $12 million on a per year basis on a multi-year deal. Guys, is that contract out there for a running back, much less a running back of Austin Eckler's stature? I don't believe so. How old is Austin Eckler now, too? I think he's like 28. Okay, so you're, I mean, in terms of running back years, you're getting towards the tail end of that. Yep. Maybe if a team feels like they're a contender, they'll do like a, a two-year deal at that. Like maybe a Buffalo Bills jump in, depending on if they've got money that says, you know what, we'll suck it up and go after something like this for two years. But there's a lot of teams that would be interested and have the money to make Austin Eckler work aren't in that spot yet. And I don't know if you want to sign a dude for three years where you feel like you could compete in three years because by that time, Austin Eckler's not going to be able to, to compete that way. So here are the running backs making at least $12 million. As I go through this list, you guys tell me if their teams are interested in getting rid of that contract currently. Oh, boy. Christian McCaffrey, his last team did already get rid of that contract by trading him away. Alvin Kamara. Yes, they'd love to get yep. out of that. Dalvin Cook. They'd love to get out yep. of that. Derrick Henry. Maybe that's the one that is a little question the identity for the Titans. He's also a mutant like that guy doesn't count to any rule that you could ever put in there. Nick Chubb. I think he's kind of like that Derrick Henry class. Still have a lot of Mixon. We've heard a million different rumors about him potentially being cut. And then Aaron Jones is on a four year deal worth twelve million dollars per. I bet they wouldn't mind getting out of that one. Yeah, that's it. That's the entire list. Dude, I'm really sorry. I, I agree with him that he is absolutely underpaid. I don't think that contract's out there anywhere, man. I don't think anybody's going to be paying him $12 million per year. And I think that's why the Chargers are willing to let him look for another spot. I don't know where he could go. That would be a better situation for him. That would pay him that kind of money. Yeah, I, I can't see a team. I Nobody really makes sense that it would be kind of desperate for a running back because there's other running backs that are out there. And as we've seen, you can always find a running back in the draft in the late rounds that can end up being a stud. Look at so, the Chiefs. They just got one in the seventh round that yeah. was starting for them in the Super Bowl. So I, I I can't picture that there's a deal out there for Austin Eckler. I think he's a hell of a football player, but there's just no way I see a team giving him $12 million. And I, I think I say this, and then there'll probably be like some big contract extension that comes out after I say this. I think we're seeing NFL teams start to learn lessons on running backs. Look at the the Cowboys were the latest team to kind of fail with Zeke, I should say. So Bajan Robinson is somebody that might end up getting hurt by this. He is the former Texas running back. If you're just going by like pure football players who are the best guys in this year's draft, Bajan Robinson is a legit top five player in this draft, but he's a running back. Do you guys think that this will play so much against him that he ends up not being a first round pick? I could see somebody taking him first round late in the draft. So I don't think he falls out of the first round, but he's not going to be selected in the top 10. Who do you think are the teams that could be looking at a running back late in the first? New England. I've seen Buffalo connected to that. I've seen uh, Philadelphia has been connected to that spot. I, I, I could see where he's drafted. I'd be shocked if Philly does it. They I don't value too. running back. Yeah. So. They, they let Miles Sanders walk. They're right. like, ah, you're going to make a little too much money. We'll go ahead and get Rashad Penny over here. I still think he'll be drafted in the first round, but I kind of agree with Alex. I, I don't think it'll be as high as a lot of people are expecting. I think it'll be late first. You know what would make so much sense? Just because I think that all everything they've done this offseason has been a little weird is Tampa Bay. Picking him at number 19, I don't think they should. It would be a ridiculous thing to do because they don't have a quarterback in there right now. You oh, don't need the running Baker. back yet. Daniel Jeremiah had them taking Will Levis with their first pick. Yeah, sure. Why not? If he ends up being there at 19 overall. Yeah. Like, other than that, here are the teams from 20 on in this year's NFL draft. Seattle's not doing it. 
Chargers clearly aren't doing it. They don't even no. value Austin Eckler. Maybe Baltimore? Maybe? Where's he Cowboys would, select? He would make sense. I could see the Cowboys. 26? I could see Cowboys Maybe. doing that. Uh, Minnesota's not going to do it. No. Jacksonville just took their guy in the first round not that long ago. The Giants are paying him all of the money on the franchise tag. Maybe Buffalo? Cincinnati, New Orleans, Philly, KC. There's if, like two teams that are even possible. If he's sitting there for Buffalo, Buffalo absolutely takes that because that's their... I mean, I know they've got James Cook, but that didn't go all that well this season consistently. So I could see Buffalo saying, yep, now's the time. Final thing here as we go through some NFL quick hitters. Brandon Cooks is officially going to be a Cowboy. They traded really nothing for him. They traded like a fifth and a sixth round pick for Brandon Cooks. And the Texans are going to eat $6 million from his salary. Alex, is this the missing link that the Cowboys were missing in their passing game? I mean, it it makes up for what they lost with Amari Cooper because having that dual threat really was a difference maker for the Dallas Cowboys that first year with CeeDee Lamb. And last year, you could tell, although CeeDee Lamb had a good season, it was a little overwhelming where he was the lone guy that they were searching for. And Michael Gallup was hurt most of the season. They just couldn't find the next one. It definitely helps. Like I said, I think we talked about this yesterday. I loved their offseason. Stephon Gilmore and uh, Brandon Cooks, that, that's two really good signings for them. And then depending on what they do in the draft, they could they could move up a tick in my eyes in terms of the NFC after their draft. I, I think he is the missing piece that they they were looking for, at least for that offense, because I still think Cooks can play. I, I know last year his numbers were way down. I think that was just because he was one in a Lovey Smith system, and I've seen how that goes. But... I, I think when you look at like 2021, for example, he had over a thousand receiving yards with Davis Mills as his quarterback. So now you're putting him as a number two to CD Lamb. Yeah, I, I think he'll have really good numbers, and it gives you another target there for Dak Prescott. I, I think he's the missing link offensively, just like I think Gilmore was the missing piece defensively. I think the Cowboys have a chance to be really good this year. I mentioned earlier, I think the Detroit Lions are a, a contender. The Cowboys are trying to go from good to great. They're, they're basically trying to do what the Lions. They are this year where the Lions were last year kind of thing. We're like, they're all one step ahead of each other. So I think the Cowboys are going to be really good this upcoming season. Mike McCarthy, it's time, buddy. This is it. There are no more excuses for you not to be able to take that next step. If you go up against San Francisco this year and you lose again, I think this is the year that he will officially be let go if he's not able to get over the top. Cowboys are a legitimate contender. I do think Brandon Cooks was the missing link for their offense. We'll have the rewind coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. today's show check out the podcast page 101espn.com the free 101 espn app is where you can go to find it it's all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers and next week you should join us for opening day at ballpark village inside a budweiser brew house cardinals home openers finally almost here we're going to be set up just steps away from the stadium join us the opening drive and the fast lane broadcasting live next thursday march 30th from ballpark village our opening day coverage is brought to you by Rawlings, Green Envy Lawn Care, and Budweiser. 
Alex, when we get to opening day, who do you think is the opening day starter for the Cardinals? You think it's Wayno? Yeah, it it has to be Wayno. There's no way you can't go Adam Wainwright to start that final opening day at Bush Stadium. If the season would have started elsewhere, I could have seen them starting Wayno and then whoever gets that opening day. But yeah, it's Wayno. Yeah, I think it'll be Wayno. I I can't see a scenario in which they turn to somebody else, even though uh, everybody else in the rotation has shown a little bit better stuff so far. I, I think they'll turn to Adam Wainwright. Fresh off a World Baseball Classic victory, USA? Hell yeah. I think he will be the guy as well. Um, I will be curious to see how they approach the the rotation all year. We'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. Flaherty was just okay today. Mike Liz has just been okay so far throughout the spring. I would say Matt's has had a very good spring for the Cardinals, but otherwise... If there is one concern that we had going into spring that remains a serious question right now, it is the pitching. I would say the offense has been better than expected in spring, and the pitching has been slightly below what I was hoping for as somebody that was a little more optimistic than most uh, on the pitching side of things. So we'll talk about that a little bit further tomorrow. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Fast Lane's coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.